understand my anger. That's like a $70,000 wedding they just trashed. A $200 shirt is a special night for us. That was $70,000 of a reception. It was like a $140,000 reception there. $140,000. Yeah, Tiger weddings cost a lot of money. I know that. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. I am Brian Mann, and I'm being joined by my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. At least I, I hope I am, Nate. I know we had some issues on the last episode. Are, are you here? Oh, of course I'm here, brother man. I, I would not miss this joyous day of celebration for the world. Uh, it, for, for those that don't know, it is Valentine's Day here upon the Satellite of Hate. Uh, Obviously, our listeners celebrated it a month or so ago, but for us, the way time moves out here in space, it's it's Valentine's Day, and and, and I cannot wait, Brian, because after the show, I got some uh, cosmonauts coming through, so uh, get ready, brother. <laughs> uh, so, Nate, I'm just curious for you checking in. How, how are you? How are you feeling now? I mean, love is obviously in the air on this episode, but how are you feeling? Yes, you know uh, the the lady cosmonauts we got coming over. Uh, after the show, notwithstanding, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better because as we will see in this episode, brother man, I, I don't know how you feel about this and I don't know, uh, how our visitor up here to the satellite of hate feels about this episode, but there were some things I genuinely liked on this episode and, and I think I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better, which is surprising because just hearing that, uh, one Mr. Bolea, cause I, I refuse to use his, uh, wrestling name uh was showing up just as i'm just using this government name it's my own little form of protest here (laughs) uh i i was i was not looking forward to this show but i was pleasantly surprised in some points and my fears were confirmed and and bolstered in other segments well you just referenced sarah we do have a visitor up here with us and that is the composer of our theme song and also former member of the band editors chris urbanovitz is here first of all thank you not just for joining but also thank you for uh, giving us that theme song you're welcome it was fun i actually enjoyed making it you, yeah i know you spent uh you spent months on this one months months uh, months to days somewhere in between those Somewhere between those two ranges. Let's yeah. say, let's call it at weeks. Okay. Uh, we had a lot of submissions and we ultimately went with you. And uh, I, I think that that has proven to be the, the correct decision for us. I'm not entirely sure if that's true either, is it? We There were several. Oh, yeah. there were. Mm-hmm. Ka- wow. Kanye was pissed. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm considerably better than him. Well, ultimately that became down to a political thing, but that's our old podcast. Oh. We don't do that here. Now, Chris, I'm curious because at this time, 2000, you uh, were not yet abusing immigration laws here in America. You were still living in England. And I'm just curious, what was your relationship both with pro wrestling and WCW specifically at that time period? Okay, I should probably make it clear that I am 
legal in, are, in this country. For now, you are legal. Although my green card did expire a year ago, but that's irrelevant. <laughs> but anyway, let's move on before I get arrested for no reason. Uh, so 2000 WCW, it was, it was, they were shown worldwide on ITV in the UK, um, which is like the, I don't know what you call it, like a recap show or like, you know, right. uh, the highlights or something like that. So. Uh, I remember thinking two things, two recollections from that. I remember, um, I remember watching Goldberg and thinking Goldberg was great, and I remember wondering why Jeff Jarrett was winning constantly because um, I thought he was he wasn't so great. And I know you like him, and I almost called him a different word there. So out of respect to you, I'm not going to. But uh, yeah, my wrestling kind of goes back to about eighty eight, eighty nine, where it was also NWA and um, whatever was on free TV at the time. I would watch or anything that I could get on VHS or beg, steal, and borrow to to watch wrestling. What was your relationship with pro wrestling while you were on the road, while you were touring? Because you, you've played some pretty large shows in front of a lot of people. Mm. Uh, a friend of the show, uh, Damon Abraham, tells us that he watches a lot of wrestling while he's on like the tour bus and things like that. Uh, were you doing that or was while you were on the road, was wrestling not really a part of that routine? Only later on, like in 2004 and five, is when we first started touring. But it was around, it was when I first started really sort of like, missing home around like 2008 or something that was also when the internet was getting slightly better in mm-hmm. these venues um i just started watching old pro wrestling because it reminded me of being a kid and it reminded me of being at home and it made me miss homeless so mm-hmm. and it was also something to do when you're on the road you there's a lot of sitting around doing nothing so you know yeah on the bunk watching some wcw from like 92 93 i'm a bill watts guy yeah i like that era also like sort of like late 80s wwf so mm-hmm. anything from that kind of era I, I was watching just to make me feel a little bit more comfortable now yeah. this is the time of, of each episode where we do our time capsule segment that's where we see what was going on in the world on this particular day it is valentine's day 2000 and nate would you believe it there actually weren't that many positive world stories to talk about the dot-com bubble is just about to pop so instead i thought we would talk about just music this week is that okay with you yeah that's, that's fine with me man I, I don't want any bad news uh, uh bringing down uh, our, our spirits here on, on this lovely valentine's day out here in space exactly that's what this episode of nitro is for so instead, <laughs> let's take a look at what was topping the charts. And since we got Chris here, we're actually going to see what was topping the UK charts. So the number one song in the UK on Valentine's Day 2000 was Go Let It Out by Oasis. Wow, I wasn't expecting that. Why is that? Well, because that's kind of when Britpop was starting to implode. There was a very strange moment in music in, in the UK between like about 1999 and 2001, where sort of Britpop, everyone had kind of given up on, and it was before the Strokes had come out, so mm-hmm. there was that next re- wave of guitar music. And there was basically just, you got Fred Biscuit and his mates doing the rap rock, and it was just <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> I do not remember this song at all, but I do have some fond memories of the uh, the Gallagher brothers, mm-hmm. the Liam and Noel, and, and I. Uh, Wonderwall was a dope song. Champagne <laughs> Supernova was great, uh, and then I I remember those two songs, and I remember, I think it was either an Unplugged or something on MTV where. Liam, I believe, was playing and Noel was heckling him from from the rafters. Mm-hmm. I think it might have been the other way around. I think Liam either had like a little bit of a uh, 
he had a little bit of a scranny and didn't want to, or didn't want to sing, or he had a sore throat, and Noel took over. I actually met Liam Gallagher once. What was that like? It's fucking terrifying. Why? Why? Have, do you know the guy? He's like, he's an intimidating kind of character. What's the most intimidating person you've met? Uh, who's the most intimidating person yeah. I've met? Or I guess, I guess least pleasant interaction with a celebrity for you. Oh, I don't want to say that. I remember being quite scared of Bobby I mean, I'll Gillespie. say for me it was Rick Springfield. But you can... It was? <laughs> okay. I'll say Titus O'Neil. I met him in Mexico. Oh, yeah. He was not intimidate, but he has this. He has, his hand is the size of Jim Cornette's tennis racket. It's a big hand. He has a big hand. <laughs> um, no, everything. Probably Liam. Probably Liam was the most. Yeah. Even though he was really, really nice, he kind of like he followed me out of the um, the bathroom at this festival. Nothing weird going on. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a George Michael situation. He goes, uh, "R.I.P." He goes, "All right, you look like a rock star," and I'm like, <laughs> "Oh shit!" <laughs> and uh, yeah, we had a chat as we walked up to the stage. Uh, but yeah, he's a nice guy. Sounds like it, but fucking terrifying, you know? Why? What? I, I, you know, he was like my. One of my heroes when I was a kid growing up. So mm-hmm. when you see these people, you get a little bit intimidated. And what about you, Nate? I'm assuming your worst interaction with celebrity was probably Taz. I mean, me and Taz are buddies, man. Don't, 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 no, don't no, no. I'm saying from that. I'm saying from that that TNA taping. <laughs> don't bring our Twitter beef in because if he gets wind of this, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be getting some DMs from Taz again. <laughs> Can I hear this story? Well, it was it was an impact taping in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, I went there with a buddy of mine, Greg, and. Taz would walk away in between the shows because it was a, one of those deals where TNA was taping two weeks worth of TV in one night. And so in between the shows, it was me, my buddy Greg, uh, this little girl and her mother. And uh, we're like, hey, how you doing, Taz? And we, we extend our hand as most polite people do. And Taz is like, hey, hey, I'm in work mode. I'll, I'll get you guys on the other side. And so then Taz comes back around before the second show starts. And we're like, hey, Taz, hey. I'll see you guys after the show. I'm like, okay, okay, whatever. He's a busy man. Uh, I get it. Uh, but then when Taz comes back around the last time, the final time when he's heading to the back, we're like, hey, hey, Taz, remember us? He's like, uh, yeah, don't, don't think so. And so, <laughs> Charming. You, so I was like, it's all right, Taz. I wouldn't want to catch those bad commentator germs anyway. And Taz kind of stopped and looked, shook his head, and, and he's probably like this, this asshole, and, and walked back <laughs> to the back. But but amongst my section, I was the hero. You know, I was I was Spartacus. I stepped up and, and defended the honor of a uh, section B thirty eight. Yeah, none of us here have had a positive interaction with any TNA employee. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I don't no, think. No, no. We but, won't get into Chris and I's uh, Hammerstein ballroom experiences. Which one? The James Storm? For, uh, no, oh, when uh, when James Storm grabbed your beer and threw it in my face. <laughs> yeah, and then I asked for like my seven dollars back, and he yep. said, "What was it?" Uh, go fuck yourself. He said, go fuck yourself yeah, to you. He said, go fuck And then yourself. later in the show, you and I were complaining about it because I'm smelling like beer and you don't have a beer. And this TNA <laughs> mark in front of us turns around and goes, sorry about your damn look. Oh, God. He uh, said it legitimately as if like, <laughs> as if right, got him. Got these guys. But we are not here to talk about TNA. We are here to talk about WCW, which I mean, really, what's the difference? But with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive into this week's episode of Nitro. Now, I want to start with an apology to both of you guys. I was unaware this was a three-hour Nitro. Now, we are in luck because at the beginning on the WWE Network, we were informed that due to technical issues, the show is mm-hmm. presented in its closest form possible. There was roughly 20 minutes of the show that had been cut out. These were Nitro Girl segments and things they didn't have the musical rights to. So this could have been even worse. So let's, you know, glass quarter full here, guys. Or better, depending on whether you like the Nitro Girls. 
Chris, you have very strong opinions about the Nitro Girls. Don't like it. I specifically wanted you on the episode so we could talk about the Nitro Girls because it's their first episode back, and then we don't even get them. That's t- uh, I mean, I wanted to talk about them. That's the only reason I'm here. Nate, I feel like you're pro Nitro Girl. I am. I, I think in in this uh, in this battle across the aisle, you know, I I, I am in the camp that is pro Nitro Girls. I'm, I'm even pro Diversity Five, the short lived Nitro Girls spinoff singing group that had maybe one <laughs> single that never charted anywhere, and they were never to be heard from again. That sounds more appealing, to be honest, to me. I think my issue with the Nitro Girls is my issue with cheerleaders in general. I don't... When they do the dance moves... Yeah. Doesn't look good. <laughs> doesn't look attractive. Well, it's and I don't like none it. of the Nitro Girls had... Uh, they had dancing backgrounds. One of them had choreography backgrounds. That's clear. And yeah. you watch, like, the, 90, the 98 ones, and it'll be like, what prop did Kimberly Page find backstage? Oh, we found a rolled-up T-shirt. We're going to do a dance involving a rolled-up T-shirt today. Also, if they were, like, 18 years old or something, that, and they're just kids or something, then that would be fine. The- oh, I thought you were going to go Mark Madden on us. Wait, <laughs> give me an hour. Give me another Spartan and I might, might get there. But these are like these are like real life grown human beings that are doing this for a living. And it's a bit I just find it a bit yeah. weird. I, I can kind of go along with Chris in terms of the execution, uh, because, yes, there they were uh, a lot of spots where the these routines just didn't pay off. But I like I like the concept maybe more than than what actually happened, because if you're trying to make this more of a sports feel and trying to separate it and differentiate it. From what the WWE was doing, I thought that it was, you know, the, whether it was the Nitro Girls or DJ Ran or things of that nature, I thought they were ideas worth trying out. There's a lot of things about WCW that I liked in theory, but they rarely achieved in executions. But here's the thing. We've talked way too much about a thing that's not even on this episode. Instead, let's get into how this show starts. And the hey, show hey, Brian. What's hey, Brian. That? Who's your favorite Nitro Girl? Oh, we're going to... Okay. Uh, I mean, I will say we are removing Kimberly Page because I feel that she uh, she was able one? to elevate herself out of this group. And she existed before... <laughs> is that fair? Can we say... She's the, she's the Justin Timberlake of the Nitro Girls. Yes. She is, she she is Beyonce. Uh, I, will, I will probably have to say... Chris and I have actually had this conversation face-to-face before. Numerous times. Numerous times. Uh, probably Spice mm. or, or Charmel. Okay, okay. Not bad, not bad. I think my favorite is probably Teo. Uh, I don't think Teo got enough love uh, with the Nitro Girls. Uh, she got enough from Kevin Nash. <laughs> oh, now you sullied my my memories. Is uh, she the Korean girl? Then, I take it. She's the she, is she the the Korean Nitro girl? Yes. Yeah. No. There's uh there's an episode uh because rumor has it that Nash was like fucking her on the side. And there is an episode of Nitro where, at the end of a promo, he says, I'm going to go eat some Korean. Oh. <laughs> it's subtle, isn't it? <laughs> it's subtle, yeah. 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 Now, now you've now you ruined, ruined my, my fandom of Taya, so yeah. I guess my... There my wasn't a backstage alternate... segment where he had, like, a plate of kimchi or anything like <laughs> <laughs> uh, My alternate would probably have to be, then, either Tigress or uh, Fire. Ooh, Tigress is... Uh... Tigers, we're going to see have some matches later on in the run of this of this uh, this show. What about you, Chris? Shawn Michaels' wife. You're going to say Whisper. Ah. Whatever her name is, yeah. I, yeah. Like, I, I, don't, I don't mind a bit of Shawn I think Michaels it was Whisper. Wife. Maybe it was... I think it was Whisper, you know. Yes, Maybe it was whisper. Whittle. I don't know. Uh, I was no Whisper fan. No? Yeah. But you like the weird-looking one. With the, the short the weird, <laughs> that's not a nice thing. Here, listen. We're going to actually start talking about this episode of Nitro. Let's move <laughs> I on. I swear to it. So the episode starts... Um, oh, so, so nobody has any thoughts on AC Jazz? <laughs> we're not going down the whole roster. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I refuse. 
It's the Big Apple. It's the media center of the world. And tonight from New York, it's Monday Nitro Live. Tony welcomes us over images of Times Square and the NYC skyline. It should be noted, though, that this show is actually in... Uniondale, Long Island, which is about an hour outside of the city, but there was no way Madison Square Garden was booking WCW at this time. WWF had a had a pretty good stranglehold, and I, I can't. Even, there would have been nowhere else from the book. Well, Jersey, they probably wouldn't have gone. To, they could have gone to Jersey, Jersey, but like Barclays wasn't around. No. Hammerstein, they probably thought was too, too small, small for them. So yeah, if you can't get MSG, there's really nowhere else to go in the city. We are then welcomed by a cliff notes of the most recent episode of Thunder. Ah, and the commissioner, welcome. The real deal, Kevin Nash. Oh, yeah! He's here! How about I make a match with Scott Hall against Jeff Jarrett? Let's see, the winner of this match wrestles Sid at the pay-per-view. Hell no, slap-ass. Oh! Good night! Turn around, Mickey! Mike Johnson pulled him out of the ring! Who's gonna face Sid at Super Bowl? So they did the the, um, the recap package, which I f- should have found helpful, but it just confused me. Yeah. Um, I think they almost realized that that was going to happen. So they did another recap <laughs> yes. of the exact same thing instantly afterwards, <laughs> After which this, was a bit more helpful. We went to the uh, Nassau Coliseum where they showed the pyro and everything mid-sentence of Mark Madden. They then cut to <laughs> a recap off. package of Thunder, and it was a different recap package. It was the exact same information, same but just content. presented in a different way. <laughs> it was very odd, but uh, I found it like... It's almost like they admitted that their storylines are so convoluted that maybe if we tell you enough times, then you'll eventually get it. Hey, yo, Jeff Jarrett, you're telling everybody you're the chosen one. You damn right, Scott Hall. Ladies and gentlemen, the real deal, Kevin Nash. Oh, yeah! Coming out of that video, we get the NWO. Oh, oh, Brian, Brian, you mean the, the Nashville World Order? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if they changed the name, I would have been okay with that. So given the current rift, and given the fact that Steiner was suspended last week for the promo that he cut, the NWO here is represented by Jeff Jarrett and the Harris Boys. I think Eric Bischoff died of embarrassment just so he could roll over in his grave at this site. The announcers wonder where Nash is since he's not with the NWO. Jarrett uh, is out with the Harris Boys, and they even have the NWO biddies, and Jarrett decides to send the biddies to the back. An actual heel move. I'll give him some credit for that. This causes sex offender Mark Madden to come out, as he has maybe his creepiest fucking statement yet. Cody, I see Kylie Buck got her braces off. I just may ask her to the senior prom now. I'm not touching that one, Mark Madden. What the fuck fetish are we teasing here from Mark? Is are, are we saying that he's actually going after underage women, which I believe is the third week in a row where we have set that precedent, Nate? Uh, and, and this is, while problematic, Brian, man, this might be one of my least major concerns with, with uh, Mark Madden. Like, this is creepy and, and doesn't need to be on my wrestling program, but I've got bigger issues with uh, with uh, M squared over here. <laughs> Is it perhaps not more of an issue that he wants to take someone who's essentially in her late 20s with massive fake breasts to a high school prom <laughs> where none of them have any right to go anywhere near? They just show up as chaperones. Seems a bit weird. Uh, uh, to, to his credit, though, he is progressive because he did offer to be asked out to the Sadie Hawkins dance. So, you know, he's 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 comfortable with women in power. But That's true. He was at the Women's March. <laughs> what, was he now? what was he doing? Throwing eggs? <laughs> or trying to get a date? So Don Harris gets on the mic, and he calls this group the elite. 
I don't think he knows what this word means. <laughs> Jarrett gets on the mic and talks about winning the title and having stroke. And honestly, I just I I got I I honestly felt bad for Jeff Jarrett here. He's trying to cut a heel promo. None of the stars of the NWO are out here, so the crowd doesn't give a fuck. They barely muster the enthusiasm to boo the guy. An asshole chant starts. Maybe twelve people are participating. Jarrett tries to milk it, but it goes nowhere. Nash then appears on the big screen, surrounded by two busty nurses. Jarrett doesn't appreciate Nash interrupting him, so he orders the Harris brothers to break announcer David Pinzer's neck if they don't cut Kevin Nash's satellite feed. Uh, giving into these demands, Nash's feed cuts to static. Jarrett spits out a few more heel lines before requesting that they play his music. However, production trucks swerve, Nash's Wolfpack music plays instead. Nash then comes out in a motorized wheelchair, uh, really questioning the need for these two medical escorts. They, they don't seem uh, helpful at all here. Nash then holds up his cast-covered foot and tells Jeff that he could still fit it up his ass. Nash explains that since no one won the match on Thunder, both Jeff and Scott are number one contenders, and the match at Super Brawl will be a three-way dance. Nash then says that he only came to the show tonight because he was already in New York visiting Scores, a strip club in Chelsea. Just so happens that I was at a very renowned rehab center in New York City known as Scores. Nash says that since he's already here, he's going to go ahead and book Jarrett against Sid for tonight in a non-title match so that they can soften each other up for Hall. Nash then props up a baseball bat like it's a hard penis and says he has to go play with his nurses. Uh, one thing I do want to bring up um, is the Ironside gag that was not only first mentioned by Mark Madden, who must have been loving it, thinking, oh, I've, I've nailed this one. But <laughs> literally 30 seconds later, Nash said the exact same joke. And the thing is, an Ironside reference in 2000 was outdated, but now, considering they did a reboot two years ago with Blair Underwood, it's a timely <laughs> joke once again. It, it was great. Also, the thing is, I, I know I said earlier about how I, I don't like Jeff Jarrett. Is he the worst, like, best wrestler that you can think of? I mean, maybe this is just me, but I can't really fault Jeff Jarrett, but I think he's shit. I think he's a great wrestler. He's a good promo. You know, he looks okay. He's mm -hmm. got stupid sunglasses on, but he's a heel. I, but I don't understand why I think he's bollocks. Now, the, to me, the thing with Jared has always been he's solid across the board. You know, he's he's got a decent look. He's a decent promo. He's good in the ring. Like, he's big, solid Bs all across the board. The problem with Jeff, though, is more often than not in his career, he's been put in roles where he's had to be the guy or an A guy. And I think especially when you talk about his TNA run, it was just too much. Like he's, he was afforded spots because of his position in the company that outweighed his actual merit in the ring, which is pretty good. But it's like, if you take somebody that's good and put them constantly in situations where we have to accept them as great, it, it doesn't work, you know? And so like on this show, in this segment, like Jeff Jarrett, did his best to try to get this thing across, whether it was, you know, uh, some of the heel mannerisms and, and just making sense of this nonsensical program. Uh, so it's like, yeah, Jeff can, he can be that guy that can do anything that you need him to do as a, you know, perfectly acceptable wrestling character. But if you want him to be a superstar, then he starts to get, you know, maybe a little bit out of his depth. 
Now, you might be wondering, why was Scott Hall not in this segment? He's just been added to the main event of the next show. This is the go-home show for the pay-per-view, after all. Why was Scott Hall not in this segment? Well, it's because Scott Hall wasn't even in this country. Over the weekend, WCW had run a tour in Germany. Hall got so trashed on the flight there that the crew refused to let him board the plane on the trip back. They actually had the exact same crew flying there and back, so they refused to let him get on the trip. Uh, WCW was already pissed at him based on the behavior he exhibited on the flight over, and they actually had him lose to Fit Finley on the first uh, show in the tour. And then they were extra pissed when it turned out he could not come back to be on this Nitro. So... He does work Super Brawl. He gets injured. But, Nate, this is actually the last time uh, we're never going to see Hall again. Last week was our first and last Scott Hall match. So another one bites the dust for us, buddy. Mm, so, so what you're saying is we can uh, say goodbye to the bad guy? We are saying goodbye to the bad guy. Damn. I mean, we had some great memories, though. That, that, that show where he showed up in the limo. Uh, then that other show where he got hit with the guitar. Uh, yeah. He did a lot of sitting on couches. No one sat on a couch like Scott Hall. <laughs> we then go to the announcer's booth where Tony Schiavone and Mark Madden provide a rundown for tonight's show. Tony gives us considerable warning that Hulk Hogan will be on tonight's show and he will be wrestling. Tony says that it's been five years since Hogan and Flair face each other on TV, which was more or less true. Tony also promises a special Valentine's Day treat for the gentleman watching. Not just that, but we will also get a sneak peek at DDP's new book. Unfortunately, the WWE Network would not allow us to see either. Outside, WCW's top star, a limousine, is shown as Ric Flair, Lex Luger, and Elizabeth arrive. Elsewhere, Three Count are shown practicing their dance moves. Somewhere else in the building, Norman Smiley talks to Linny and Lodi. Norman insults the, the duo's clothes, while Linny has no time to listen because he is on his cellular telephone talking to a rat. I don't take care of this. I'm talking to a rat. Rat! I gotta do a little bit of a fact check here. Chris, I'm assuming... You Why are you what... coming to me? Why are you coming to me? Where is this going? <laughs> is it standard... Uh, is, is it typical to spend time during the actual show having phone calls with groupies backstage? On my cellular device. On your cellular device. Uh, I don't remember ever having a phone conversation with a groupie, rat, or other rodent or human being of, a, of that kind of kind uh, in my day. I feel like that's something that happens once the show's over. Once the show's over, then we can go have to the a hotel, conversation. Go to the back door. Yeah, there's, there might be something, you know, happening. Right. Might be Mark Madden around the corner with <laughs> a few teenagers that are going to... Although, I mean, for you, when, when did you start touring? What year did you start touring? Uh, like full time, mm -hmm. probably end of 2004. Okay. So things might've changed. Like this is pre text messaging. So maybe, yeah, you gotta was. get on that cell phone. Yeah. You gotta you got, make concrete you, plans. You, you gotta go on your cellular device. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was texting in 2004 kids just to let you know, but it wasn't, I but mean, it wasn't as it is now. You couldn't send a thumbs up emoji and expect <laughs> to get late. You know, it's not going to happen. Unfortunately. There was no, just an easy eggplant. Too. It wasn't that easy. You had kids. To put, you maybe had to talk to someone, sweet talking for 10 minutes. You did, on which, the is, phone. which is why I was very unsuccessful for many years. Uh, perfect segue here. Uh, Miss Hancock is shown walking to the ring somewhere else while Tony and Mark lose all ability to speak. In the arena, three count are already in the ring as Norman Smiley's music hits. Norman enters decked out in New York Islanders gear. As Norman comes out, we get a recap of the Worst of Three series that he's had these past couple of weeks with three count. 
2XS's music now plays, but only Lenny Lane comes out. We are not given any reason why Lodi is not going to partake in this match. Uh, so with that, we get three count versus Norman Smiley and Lenny Lane. Things start off with Shannon Moore and Norman Smiley. For some reason, Norman is wrestling in goalie pads, so everything he does is awkward. Uh, Moore and Smiley then end up brawling to the floor, which gives Lenny Lane an idea. Lenny looks at the crowd, calls for a dive, and then flips over the top rope, attempting some sort of senton, but missing both of his targets by at least a foot. Lane just, he just does a straight back bump right in front of Norman and Shannon. Looks like so fucking painful. Both guys do a phantom bump off of this to try to sell it. The announcers actually call this an incredible move. More than checks on Lane and stands him up. In the ring, though, Helms is unaware of Lane's condition, and he does a suicide dive onto him. Lane, now unable to catch a break, gets to his feet, but is only greeted by a top rope dive from Evan. Four fucking dives in a row, and the most over guy in this match was the dancing dude who was wearing hockey pads. So kids, work smarter, not harder. Getting back in the ring, three count works over Lane. Miss Hancock then enters to a chorus of whistles. I've... I've never whistled at a woman, and there was at least a thousand people in Nassau Coliseum <laughs> who were doing it. Have you ever done that, Nate? No, like, I, I I think it's, or I would think that it was just, you know, some trope from, from movies or TV. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I guess you could say catcalled in my, in my younger days, in my uh, youth, when, when I was not so... Uh, Distinguished and classic, classy as I am now. Uh, but just to whistle like that, that makes no sense to me. Like that, that, that seems a very inefficient way to, uh, get the uh, attention of a woman. I've never tried it. I've never heard anyone try it and it work. Um, don't forget that wrestling fans are a completely different bunch to regular human beings. Um, it wasn't that long ago when we were in Hammerstein for that TNA show. Mm-hmm where there was a We Want Puppies chant in yes. about 2015. I, and I, I think was like, it was 2015. Something that like was... that. I was like, come on, guys. <laughs> this is embarrassing. And, you know, you have a cell phone. Just go and see some fucking tits on Safari and, you know, on the oh, internet. Oh, I thought you were talking about 2000. Because in 2000, whistling was the closest thing you could possibly... Whistling, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> they're going to go home later and they're going to be thinking about that. Like, I whistled at Stacey <laughs> Yeah, didn't work. Did not work. One of these days, yep. someone will whistle so well. I think that's what George Clooney did. George Clooney just had that perfect whistle he did. He that did. it got Stacey's attention. So Miss Hancock goes to the commentary to run down Linian uh, Idol for getting rid of her. Tony and Mark start calling Hancock a prude and a straight arrow. The announcers are just totally ignoring the match until Norman does a big wiggle. However, Norman's dancing actually summons cheap Euro trash techno music to start playing, and the Nassau Coliseum is temporarily transformed into scores as Miss Hancock gets on the announcer's table and begins dancing. Tony stares directly at Hancock's ass, while Mark says, Thank goodness I glued this mirror on the table. This distraction allows Norman to lock in his cross-faced chicken wing on Evan for the submission win. I have a complaint. What is that? When you said your Euro trash house music came on, I was looking at the entrance for Alex Wright, and I was mortified when there was no Alex Wright. <laughs> and I thought maybe it was going to be a, a, a WWE dub of Alex Wright's music, and there was no Alex Wright. Well, but- who would you have preferred to see dancing on that announcer's table? Stacy Keebler or Alex Wright? Why not both? <laughs> Stacy Keebler was already out there. You sent Just Alex Wright. Just a beautiful Wright. pair of blondes. Yeah. <laughs> Stacy Keebler and Alex Wright. Five stars. You know, I, I take notes here uh, so I can, you know, give my opinions and give my analysis on these shows. And 
while I am a big fan of Norman Smiley, and I think that he was criminally underused in this point, at this point in WCW, the only note I have for this segment is Miss Hancock stuff. In the back, Ming and Al Green argue about something. I could not make out a single word of what either of these guys were saying. And we look in the back. And I'm not. And I'm not. Tank Abbott is already in the ring for his weekly squash match, and this week's lucky opponent is Rick Fuller. Tank, though, sees his sworn enemy, Big Al, at ringside and gets in his former bodyguard's face. This allows Fuller to attack Tank for an early advantage. Rick is only able to land a few blows in the ring as security removes Big Al from the building. Fuller's fury is short-lived as Tank quickly KOs him with the weakest right hand we've seen from Tank so far. Uh, the, the first thing, shout out to Rick Fuller, who, besides being one of the greatest jobbers in the history of WCW, I believe, and they can check me on the fact-checking thread, I believe he was an unlockable character in the WCW Thunder game, which tells you all you need to know about the WCW Thunder video game. That's a reason to play. <laughs> like you gotta unlock Rick Fuller. Uh, but the other thing about this match, and, and, you, and you alluded to it, man, and I, I think this might be the third or fourth episode that, uh, it stuck out like a sore thumb. That punch as his finishing move is not over in any way, shape, or form with the crowd or with the viewers at home. There's a big difference between throwing a shoot punch and a work punch. Mm -hmm. And a lot of shoot fighters never had good work punches from yeah. Ken Shamrock to Blackman mm -hmm. with his kicks. You can feel them like, yeah. holding themselves back as they yeah. do it. Yeah. They just need to completely change what they learn and work, do a work punch. Exactly. So we then go to a pre-recorded interview between Mike Tanay and Tank. Tanay asks Tank what he remembers from his days in the Ultimate Fight Championship. Tank's favorite memory was being the best fighter in UFC. <laughs> a laughable statement even by the early days of UFC. <laughs> Tank's record was 8-7 and seven at this point. Tanay explains this away by saying, it's almost as if your main goal was to hurt people rather than your win-loss record. Tanay says that Tank was known for his entourage and that no one was more well-known than Big Al. Two lies. Tank then books himself and Big Al in a skins match at Super Brawl. I went to the WCW people and said, I need to take care of some business. Let me have a skins match at Super Brawl. And they agreed. And a skins match as far as taking the jacket, how's that going to be accomplished? Well, what we're going to do is going to hang it from a pole and I'm going to take Al's head off, and I'm going to go up there and take my jacket down. This might have been my favorite thing that I've seen Tank Abbott do uh, so far. Like, I, I dug to sit what, down with Mike today. Not wrestle was your favorite thing <laughs> yes, you've seen him do? Yes, not wrestling, not throwing sloppy punches. Uh, might have been my favorite thing I've seen Tank Abbott do, because he, he actually came across as somebody, maybe not a legitimate wrestler, but he was like, okay, I can kind of believe this guy as a, as a tough guy. You know, he had the line where... Uh, he was talking about the UFC guys, and he was like, you know, uh, all I know is after the fight, the other guy went to the hospital, and I was going out to the bar. And like, you know what, Tag Abbott, if this was the guy, if this was the presentation we got for, you know, the last two months, I might have been into whatever the hell they were doing here with Big Al. But because this is the first time you show me on TV that he can have some uh, a bit of toughness and a bit of a aura, if you will, around him. Uh, it, it's too little too late, so I, I don't give a damn about your skins jacket, especially now that I know it's a skins jacket on a pole match. I 100% agree with that. Uh, I found it really refreshing, and that's something that I kind of want that sort of sit-down interview style. I remember when, uh, uh, didn't the power go out, it was snowing or something, and there was yeah. they did Reigns and, um, and Brock with that sit-down thing. It kind of reminded me of that. 
it didn't feel like a wrestling segment. It felt like a, you know, not a UFC segment, but like a shoot kind of, yeah. you know, it felt like, felt real. And when the whole show so far doesn't really feel to me like a wrestling show. So it's nice just to have something that's, you know, there's there's a little bit of reality mm. going on there instead of all the bullshit, especially after kind of the whole Stacey Keebler incident. We I could have used it, more sit downs with Tank and fewer knockouts of JJ uh, Dillon, right? No, he didn't knock out JJ Dillon. He knocked out Doug Dillinger. Yeah. <laughs> which non non wrestler he knocked out? So we then go to the NWO locker room where Jeff is on the phone demanding the WCW executive committee make his match with Sid a title match. Dustin Rhodes then reminds us to leave the rough stuff to the pros. You be careful and take care of yourself. Leave the rough stuff to the pros. Mean Gene in his, oh my god, Mean Gene, Iron Man tonight. We had to have seen this guy a dozen fucking times to, to fill some time in the back here. Mean Gene interviews the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea and the Charmel formerly known as Paisley. Paisley begins to speak for the artist before handing the floor over to the purple one. I like to watch... As you do, Mean Gene. Psychosis, my eye is on you. I have done a 360 brother <laughs> on this character. Now, I can quite safely say that, jobbers aside and all that, Prince Iakea is the least talented professional wrestler I have ever seen. <laughs> Certainly in that time period in Nitro. Now, boy, have I done a 360 brother all the way around to the back. And Do you think he suddenly is talented in the ring? I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I know he's probably still rubbish, but I love him. Yeah, he was he was some bland, generic babyface at first, but uh, this this iteration of of his character is is amazing. Like I obviously I was a big uh, fan of Prince. Uh, rest in peace. Pull some out for Prince. Uh, but seeing him kind of seeing Prince Ikea kind of take the Prince motif and apply it to a professional wrestling character and then bringing Charmel in as Paisley. I thought it was a really neat gimmick. And by wrestling standards, it was, I don't want to go as far as to say innovative, but it certainly was more creative than they usually do in terms of like, he could have easily been just some generic rapper or some Van Hammerish kind of heavy metal dude, but to kind of take, the Prince persona and apply it to this guy and give him a great Jimmy Hart theme that we don't get to hear on this show, unfortunately. Uh, I, I was a big fan of the character. I guess where I'm at is that I have so little interest in this guy as a performer that I think he actually does a disservice to what could be a very interesting gimmick. Like, there's a thing after the match where, like, uh, Charmel Paisley, who we would find years later in WWF, was just a, an incredible f- performer. She like does this like slinky sort of like sexy crawl towards him, and he's just like standing in the ropes, like Ooh, don't, don't don't touch me, you know. Like it's clear that he didn't know how to embody Prince. And I'm trying to think like, and this was a this was an interesting time period for Prince as a as an artist. I mean, he's doing the symbol thing. I, and I think I.K. is playing off of the mystique of what people thought about Prince at the time and not necessarily the full concept of him as, a, as, as an artist, if that makes sense. There's something a little bit um, sort of come see, come saw about Prince as well. Yeah. The fact that he was a very androgynous character and, you know, as much as he was a ladies' man, is he bisexual, is he this and is he that? I don't think that the artist was actually playing on that when he was, mm. when he was sort of interacting with Charmel on purpose but he should have been and he should have you're right i think the concept is better than the execution but maybe it's because 
I have so little respect for Prince Ikea <laughs> back then. And it almost became like a joke that when I saw this thing, it was like a completely different human being. And okay, when you switch from baby face to heel, when you switch from, like Nate said, bland baby face to actually having a character, then it, you know, it can really kind of reinvent you. But um, I felt there was so much more to that gimmick that could have happened. Um, maybe taking Prince a little bit too literally was perhaps a mistake. And just taking sort of the androgyny and the eccentricities of Prince and maybe bringing that forward would have been better. But And also at the same time, once he gets in the ring, it's over. Yeah. So he's still which, Prince I care. Let's talk about him in the ring. We then go back to the arena for his match uh, for the evening, which will be Billy Kidman and Vampiro versus La Parca and the artist formerly known as Prince Ikea. Kidman makes his way out first with his future ex-wife, Tori Wilson. Kidman's tag team partner for the evening is Vampiro, who will actually be his Super Brawl opponent this Sunday. So, swerve coming, guys. Now, Nate, you mentioned it. Unfortunately, we do not get that great Prince ripoff that Jimmy Hart gave us. Unfortunately, we are given, uh, we're given what the network throws our way, which Chris, though, still enjoyed. I didn't think it was too bad. I could tell it wasn't the, um, wasn't the right one. Um, but I actually thought they did a decent job yeah. of that one. I mean, we're going to get to it. Uh, later on in the episode, I'm sure about what I didn't like about some of the uh, some the, of the replacements. Some of the replacements, <laughs> we'll get to that eventually. But this one, I didn't think was one of the uh, was one of the bad ones. No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't too bad. I think as far as replacement goes, it's probably near the top in terms of trying to at least match the feeling of the original song. But that that Jimmy Hart fake Prince, uh, I guess that we call it riff. Yeah, yeah. Riff, I guess we yeah. call it Purple Fain. Uh, <laughs> It, it's it's just great. It might be one of my favorite knockoff themes. Like, it's DDP, and then it's the Prince Ikea theme. We so, actually listened to it before the, uh, before the podcast, Brian played it for me, and it is considerably, like, it is considerably better than what, what was played. Yeah. And it is great. So the match starts with Kidman and Vampiro clearing the ring. Laparka uh, lands some insanely loud chops on Vampiro at one point. Laparka then blocks a Tornado DDT and hits a Russian leg sweep. The artist gets in and slams Vampiro, goes to the top rope, but Vamps gets a boot up. Out of nowhere, we then cut to ringside, where Tori and Paisley are having a cat fight. Tony even admits that he has no idea why this is happening. Paisley and Tori Wilson getting in it. I don't know what prompted that other than personal pride. The crowd doesn't even react because I don't think they knew that it was even happening. Uh, Vamp then goes for a tag, but Kidman is on the floor separating the women. Kidman eventually gets the tag, but Vampiro is already pissed, and he walks out in protest. This allows Laparka and Prince Ikea to double-team Kidman, which then leads to the artist hitting a second-rope DDT for the pin on Kidman. So yeah, a, a pretty nothing tag match. I don't know why, of all people, Laparka was the one who was uh, put in here, but whatever, you had to have two people. That being said, I mean, whatever. We're building up to the match at Super Brawl. I am a little disappointed. Nate, I don't know if you remember, did the... Did the artist have a Prince referencing finishing move at this time? He may have. I, I don't remember it. So if he did, it wasn't that memorable. Uh, but yeah, I just remember. And I also remember him having more uh, more kind of Prince mannerisms during his match. And, and maybe just because it was a tag match, he couldn't you know get his signature spots in, as it were. Uh, but yeah, this was kind Could of do the, the licking the finger and poking people. Yeah. <laughs> This this was kind of like a a paint by numbers WCW Cruiserweight Division version 2.0 kind of match. Like not bad, but certainly not 
what we were used to seeing out of the division uh, in the mid to late nineties. Uh, but yeah, it, it was solid. And, and, you know, we got, we got some good setup for that hot Kidman Vampiro match we got coming up. What Prince themed finishing move do you think he should have had? I mean, the obvious one is something to do with purple rain. It's his biggest hit. I mean, purple pain, I feel like purple is like pain a was the one the I didn't want to mention. Yeah. But I think like the raining down kind of thing, mm-hmm. maybe some sort of, maybe a, some sort of superplex yeah. type move where it's, you know, he can say it's, oh, it's raining down. The pain mm-hmm. is raining down and something like that. It needs to be basic and obvious and yeah. as if it was made by an 11 year old. Cause what if he does, uh, what if he does a jackknife powerbomb and it's called jack you off? It's interesting. Right. Uh, one for Mark Madden's playbook. I think that one. Oh man, there's there's so many ways we could go with this. Uh, I mean, I, I'm thinking I'm thinking maybe something deeper in the Prince catalog. You know, uh, how about a shooting star press that's called Baby I'm a Shooting Star. I like it, but you you do realize that Prince Ikea is going to have to perform a shooting star press. <laughs> yeah, so we, we we need something a little bit more grounded. We're yeah. also going to need my uh, music snob Mike Tanay to explain the the reference to me. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So backstage, Terry Funk is taping his fists. Elsewhere in Nash's locker room, Nash is arguing with the WCW executive committee before giving in and saying that Sid versus Jarrett can be a title match. Elsewhere backstage, hometown boys, the Mamelukes, tell Disco Inferno <laughs> that they want to leave so they can visit their family. However, Disco says that he has brought the party to the arena. They then pan over to reveal and an entire party tent has been set up and is filled with their relatives. How the fuck did the Mamelukes not see this one second earlier? <laughs> not only is this a spontaneous gathering of the Marinera family, it's also a wedding reception. Party time! Big Vito dances with his sister and gives her money for a down payment on her house. Uh, I mean, if this had just been one one segment, it would have been too much. We're going to get five of these things. Why, why do you hate love, Brian, man? <laughs> that's what we're taking from this? That's, that, that's what I'm taking from your I'm anti-wedding? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you hate love because, I, I mean, I... Obviously, I'm I'm a little bit more of a uh, a sappy romantic, but uh, I, I was I was pleasantly surprised by this segment because, and this is no shade on the Mamelukes, I, I've not been a fan of them during our time watching them here on these nitros. But this was, you know, at least this first segment. I'm not going to speak to all the segments, but this first segment was uh, kind of entertaining. It was cute, you know, and it, I mean, it, there were some big questions and some plot holes, like if the Mamelukes didn't know, you know, what, that their families was here, you know, what, was he just walking around with this money all day through the streets of New York City? <laughs> he had about $20,000 in cash to just give to someone for, <laughs> the first person he saw that he liked, he was going to let them put a down payment on their house. Uh, I, Chris, I read, out of three of us, you're the only one who's actually married, and did you get married in New York? I did, yeah. I, it was not like that, though. But let's say on a moment's notice, would you have moved your wedding reception to the Nassau Coliseum? Of course. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, it's 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 in New York City, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, if you're blind and, like, drive an hour in the wrong direction. They had to have driven an hour from Bensonhurst. We, we've established they Oh, okay, they like Queens, Pro- I think. Probably more like two hours, right? If they're coming all the way from Bensonhurst? Maybe, maybe. Who knows? Um, but, yeah, I thought this uh, this segment was bollocks. Well, it gets more. Okay. <laughs> so we then go uh, out to the arena where Rhonda Singh is making her way out for the debut match from the WCW Women's Division. 
her opponent for the evening, the future Molly Holly in the WWF. Uh, but she goes by the name Mona at this point. Mona had come in the previous year as a member of Team Madness before receiving training at the power plant. Now, of course, no women's segment would be complete without toxic sexism as Oklahoma's music hits and out comes the cartoonish heel. Oklahoma gives both women a round of applause before revealing that Medusa will be the special referee for the match. Now, uh, if you remember from our last episode, Oklahoma has declared that Medusa is ineligible for the women's division because of her excessive plastic surgery. So Medusa enters the ring as Oklahoma gets on commentary. It can only go down from here. Ronda knocks down Mona several times, but Mona is able to score a takedown. Mona goes for a pin, but Medusa is talking to a fan at ringside. This wasn't a spot. Medusa was just legitimately <laughs> distracted from the match at hand. Mona hits a missile drop kick, but it's only good enough for a two. Ronda gets in the face of Medusa, which allows Mona to attempt a sunset flip. Oklahoma then runs onto the apron and grabs Ronda's hands, blocking the flip. Medusa breaks up the move by kicking their hands apart. Ronda then nails Medusa, sits on Mona, and Oklahoma counts the three. Bullshit. <laughs> Clearly, they're building up Ronda as the big heel for Medusa. Not quite. Um, actually, this is the last time we will see Ronda. Uh, this is also the last time we will see Mona, who was clearly the shining star of this match. So we obviously have the ability of looking into the future. This is leading nowhere, but let's scale it back. What What is even the fucking point of any of this? We have a match between two people, one of which clearly shouldn't be wrestling, one of which is still very talented and should probably push more than Medusa. And are we building to a Medusa-Oklahoma match that we already did? I this, Did they already do that? Because They thought did the match and sold do. out already. Oh, I didn't know that. Oklahoma it, already beat her for the Cruiserweight title and relinquished it. For the what? The Cruiserweight <laughs> the title? The Cruiserweight title. We're not going to get into all that. Okay, I haven't got time for this. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big Medusa fan. Yeah. And have been for a long time since her sort of like Dangerous Alliance days. And I think she's a great wrestler. And um, she's only just sort of recently getting her dues with that Hall of Fame thing that she's yeah. a... That, that's just come up there. But that all this seemed to me was like they were setting up. It reminded me of when Paulie and Medusa had their match, you know, 10 years prior mm -hmm. almost. But that obviously, like you said, just happened. So I don't know what's going on. We're, as WCW fans, we're very used to the idea of pushing the older talent past the point you should be. And this is what this felt like. Uh, we had Mona here who was actually getting over the previous year quite a bit. And seem like someone that if you actually wanted to create a legitimate women's division and create a legitimate women's star, she was the one to go with. But we're going with Medusa really for the only reason that she's a pat hand and that she's been around for a while. I didn't see any reason why Medusa was the one to build around in 2000. I mean, if anything, you should have had a Medusa Mona feud in order to uplift uh, the future Molly Holly. And, and so, you know, this particular match, it, it was wrong-headed on so many levels like i think that just kind of bringing uh the late great ronda singing here cold with no connection to the fans if any if anything they would have remembered her from the birth of Faye gimmick uh which was not her best moment uh so i, I don't think that was a that was a smart move obviously well, i think ronda singh had been on thunder a few times before this so this wasn't her debut proper but it was her finale proper <laughs> I mean, we've established, Brian, man, nobody watches Thunder. Singh's got family. I'm sure they taped it. <laughs> uh, but the other thing is we have this whole Oklahoma thing, which 
probably should have never started, but it certainly should have been ended by now. Uh, so reintroducing this and this feud with Medusa, it, it just doesn't work for me. Uh, I think the only thing that I liked about this match was outside of one or two comments, the fear that I had going in here was, was that we're just going to get a bunch of fat jokes uh, aimed at Ronda. And outside of a couple comments from Mark, man, we really didn't get that hit over the head. So there's one positive, I guess I could say about this thing. Yeah. There was jokes about that Oklahoma and Ronda could be brother and sister, but that's about as far as they went. Backstage, the Mamelukes introduced Disco Inferno to their family at the rate of about 40 Italian stereotypes per second. Big Vito's grandmother tells him to stop spitting during his matches. <laughs> Elsewhere in the NWO locker room, Jarrett receives a phone call informing him that his match with Sid is, a, is now a title match. Mean Gene is then interviewing Ric Flair backstage. Flair calls Hogan an obstacle before hyping his partnership with the Total Package. Even Ric Flair, the greatest promo in wrestling history, could not make us believe that he was happy to be partnered with Lex Luger. Uh, I, I actually thought this was, uh, unfortunately, not a great promo from Ric Flair. I kind of felt like Ric Flair was just sort of going through the paces here. Uh, well, yes, WCW 2000. But I here's think the thing, it's been two, broken down so much. Two episodes ago, he lit the arena on fire in this oh. promo battle with Terry Funk. And here he is tonight, uh, really bringing nothing to the table. I think it's also didn't get much time. And um, there's a Hogan interview coming up as well, which suffers the same fate. Yeah. Like he might have just been hung over. <laughs> Very likely. They are in New York City. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Nate, any, any positives from this? I mean, other than, you know, the this great horseman reunion. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think we've, we've undersold that. Selling point here, Brian, man. But other than that, no, not a whole lot uh, from nature in this one. Speaking of not a whole lot, the total package makes his way out with Elizabeth. Uh, Luger stands in the middle of the ring for his pose down. Elizabeth rips off his tearaway shirt, revealing an oiled-up wellness failure. Liz then goes to rip off his pants, but Terry Funk has snuck into the ring. Elizabeth runs off as Luger is oblivious to all of this. So Funk attacks from behind... But not before ripping off Lex's pants for him. <laughs> this had to be the oddest start to a sneak attack I've ever seen. And also Lex Luger's idea. It's like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Make sure you rip off my pants. And he also like he sold it like yesterday. his balls hurt from like the force. It did look like it caught his, uh, his undercarriage at that time when it whipped through. But judging by his frame, I think that there wasn't a lot. <laughs> the, the, what is it? Testicular atrophy that you get from an excess needle in the bum? I think it was a very small target for Terry Funk to hit it. Well, point. he hit it. So, um, if I said to you Terry Funk versus Lex Luger in 2000, you would yes, probably envision this match. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot of Lex Luger attempting to sell as he stays on his knees, <laughs> and Terry Funk yelling and just punching him over and over again. Uh, this thing was no good. Uh, he just Terry Funk just works over Lex's. The immobile Luger is like stumbling around. They go to the floor, and Funk sets up a table. Elizabeth distracts Funk, and Package attacks from behind. Luger then press slams Funk through the table for the disqualification. <laughs> Just kidding. The match continues, <laughs> and back in the ring, Luger works over Funk's back and signals for a torture rack. Lex then goes for the rack, but Funk hits a low blow. Funk follows up with a DDT, but only gets a two. Funk then goes to the top rope and attempts a moonsault. However, Luger moves, and Funk instead lands on a chair that Liz has slid into the ring. Now, for some reason, this results in a DQ, but the table did not. Uh, after the match, Luger places a chair on 
Funk's arm to break it, but Arn Anderson runs down and takes the chair, preventing the, the arm breaking from happening. Why did this match not just end at the table spot? Why did we keep going? Because it was brilliant. <laughs> First of all, like there was, he, he didn't miss the moonsault. He had a moonsault headbutt because Luger didn't move far enough. <laughs> so that's, 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 that's my first gripe. The second one, there was this great moment where um, they were outside and Luger was going to whip uh, Funk into the guardrail mm-hmm. on the outside. Because they're so, like, well, because Funk's old and Luger's roided up to the gills. There's like maybe half a pair of knees between the two of them. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, they, um, Funk reversed it. And sent Luger in. He had at least maybe six or seven yards until he got to that that fence. He wasn't moving very quickly, <laughs> so he like flailed his arms around like a big octopus and went oh! <laughs> until he got there, which just made me piss myself laughing. I thought it was brilliant. I just love Lex Luger so much. Uh, I just want just a quick point on Luger. Uh, just like I made a point about Jarrett being, you know, one of the good wrestlers who's. Um, who I, I somehow think isn't very good. Um, Luger, I, is he the only wrestler who sort of went into his prime but got worse as he entered his prime? Does that make sense? Yeah. Luger in like 88 and 89 in NWA, and maybe it's because he was wrestling Flair and all these guys, he is actually having some great matches. I think he was a better seller. He was a better promo. And then it's almost like he just deteriorated ever since. Uh, do you guys notice that? Or do you see a deterioration in Luger when he should have been hitting his prime? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when you talk about 88, 89, uh, back in the NWA days, even with, you know, guys like Flair and, and Steamboat uh, and Sting, like I think Luger was, if not, you know, up to the challenge, he certainly wasn't a slouch. He certainly wasn't mm. a stiff. He certainly didn't seem to be a guy that was phoning it in. Agreed. But at this point, like I think if you look at his d- comebacks, you know, starting with that first Nitro at the Mall of America and going all the way up to the episode that we're reviewing this week, he probably peaked when he beat Hogan for the title. And then after that, had a steady decline. And by the time we get to 2000, when he's just the total package, he is very much relying on a character instead of his in-ring work. You know, he's he's gotten bigger, uh, but he's also gotten slower. He's gotten worse. His moves don't look as crisp. Uh, and his promos, you know, the thing that you would think would be getting better as the years go on seem to be getting worse. And, yeah, I don't know if it's just a case of him getting that big, fat check, you know, on the, on the second go-round from WCW, and he figured he didn't have to work as hard or, or what. But, yeah, there is a certain line of demarcation from when we get good Luger to the total package. And and, and this is certainly uh, in the total package category where he's just not good. And, and it's one thing if he's not good and he's in there with a guy like Sting or even a guy like Booker T, you know, mm-hmm. in the match we saw a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But when you're in there and Lex Luger is the guy that you're counting on to carry – uh, what what is he now? Fifty six at this time. Fifty five. Don't oversell it. <laughs> Fifty five year old Terry Funk is like who? Even on paper, like that's not a good match. No, and was this probably their first match? Right, unless they had something in eighty eight, eighty nine. No, they, prob- they wouldn't have. No, Flair, yeah. Flair was uh, Flair was with Funk in eighty nine after the Steamboat yep. thing. A dream match. We got here on Nitro. Uh, it, kind of. Uh, backstage, Mean Gene really earns that paycheck, revealing that tonight's Jarrett versus Sid match will be a title match 
but it won't be for the world title. It will be for Jeff Jarrett's U.S. title. I bet you forgot he was champion. This is he was the Roman Reigns of U.S. champions here. <laughs> I, I didn't actually. I because uh, the first thing they showed was Jarrett's that beautiful U.S. title belt right at the Such start of the title. show. So and I had so that was nice to know because I had no idea. No, Jeff Jarrett has not defended this title once okay. this entire year. Uh, so yeah, this is his first defense. So good for him. We then go in the NW locker room where Jared and the Harrises are throwing chairs all over the place in anger. We then go into Nash's office where Big Sexy asks his two medical escorts to check his temperature. Nash then asks for his medicine and one of the nurses fills his mouth with whipped cream. I need some medicine. Can you guys guess who's writing the show? <laughs> <laughs> In his locker room, Sid laughs as he watches his monitor, so at least one person enjoyed this Nash segment. We then cut to somewhere else in the arena, where back at the big, fat Italian wedding reception, Big Vito's sister throws the bouquet, which is caught by Daphne. This brings in David Flair and Crowbar, who trash the wedding reception and attack the Mama Lukes with cake, thus ending our wedding reception angles here. Um... So, yeah, I think we maybe put a little too much into this, but at least it had somewhat of a payoff, right? Nope. <laughs> hey, the uh, extras got paid off. <laughs> they showed it, didn't they? they? There was a segment later on where there was a little bit more of the extras hamming it up during the match where they're just like, oh, no, and they're just they're really selling like the, the fact that their I brothers bet are getting them- beaten up. I could just think of the saddest, like, these these guys, like, you know, they've been struggling, they're trying to get that equity card, they're trying to get into a union, they're like, Mom, I booked a national television show, it's just one night, but this is going to get me in a SAG, I'm going to get, I'm going to be in a union, I'm going to get healthcare, and yeah, it's wrestling, and it's really shitty wrestling, but I will be set after this. They get to the arena, like, oh yeah, yeah, we're not a union shoot, this doesn't count, you're not going to get SAG credit for this. Yeah. And by the way, smear this uh, creamy shit on your face as well, because you're going <laughs> to get a bit of that. We then go to the arena where Harlem Heat 2000 makes their way out, accompanied by Jay Biggs in a neck brace. Can I, sorry, can I ask who yeah. the, who's Jay Biggs? Well, Jay Biggs is is uh our Johnny Cochran uh pastiche, if you will. He's <laughs> our our Johnny Cochran stand in, and he was formerly known as Clarence Mason in oh, the WWE. I, I thought I recognized him because he was like he was all in like you know he was injured or something, wasn't, wasn't he at the time? Wait, hold on. Didn't did Clarence did did Mason and Ahmed Johnson ever cross paths in the WWF? Yeah, because they were in the nation of domination, weren't they? So this is an existing... Cl- or like, at least on the opposite sides. So this is an, an existing client it relationship he has here. It's like a crossover from WWF into... into All this time, play. I assume Stevie Ray called Jay Biggs to litigate this. It was probably Big T who called Jay Biggs. More likely. I think this all checks out. Makes perfect <laughs> sense, doesn't it? So Harlem Heat comes out. They got Jay Biggs with them. Flair and Crowbar then come out next, covered in wedding cake, but they are then attacked by the Mamelukes in the aisle. So we are getting a three-way dance for the tag titles. In the ring, Vito lands a suplex on Crowbar. Big T uh, tags in, causing some of the least coordinated spots I've ever seen between him and Big Vito. Uh, Disco joins commentary and flat out says that he does not like these types of matches. (laughs) Stevie hits a slapjack on Crowbar, but Vito breaks up the pin. David Flair then hits Stevie with a crowbar... The, the weapon, not the person. And Vito rolls him up for the pin. After the match, Harlem Heat lays out the Mamelukes just to make sure no one gets over here. Big T attempts a double underhook powerbomb on Vito, 
but fucks it up in such a way that Vito somehow lands on Big T's head. I've never seen someone do this in a powerpuff <laughs> spot. This was incredible. It was impressive. Japanese, wasn't it? This is another gift request, guys. Please, get us a gift of this. The first, he did it again. The he second, then did it to the other dude, and he was fine. That was But a because good one. Stevie Ray walked over and helped him. <laughs> So, I, th- I actually thought that it was a double T move when I first saw it, and then actually nope. thinking about it more often, I'm just like, he definitely did it because he fucked the first one. If you are within walking range of Big T, make all of his moves double T moves. Always. For the sake of the other dude's But help. he always used to fuck up the Pearl River Plunge, you know? Mm-hmm. I remember he did it to one of Legion of Doom, I think, and they both ended up going through a table. So, In so, a good way. So with both Mamelukes and Disco Inferno now down... Flair and Crowbar run in and get in a few cheap shots. Security then pulls Flair and Crowbar off as a stretcher takes away the tag champions. We then cut to the wedding reception, cartoonishly crying, making a mockery of anything that was achieved in this segment. Flair and Crowbar are really nuts! They just beat him! And look at Grandma in the family. Well, they maybe just realized the bride's pregnant. This was terrible. This was awful. This was no good. This was somehow worse than the three-way dance that we had at the beginning of the show for the tag titles. What blows my mind is that this company had to fill a three-hour show unopposed. You don't have to worry about people changing the channel, yet you're still doing this overbooked, overshot, three-way dance that's impossible to follow. With three teams that, you know, in, in all kindness, I guess, should not be in this position. You know, you've got the Mama Lukes, who are not over. You've got Crowbar basically carrying David Flair to whatever proficiency in the ring that this team has. And then you've got the new Harlem Heat, a Harlem Heat 2000, however you want to classify them. Uh, I prefer to call them the uh, Black Road Warriors because uh, that's that's what their new ring gear, it, it reminds me of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also because when I see Ahmed Johnson, I, I get a rush. Uh, so there's, there's that. Uh, but yeah, it, neither one of these teams, or all three of these teams, should not be at this level. At best, they should be contenders for someone else. And so when you put them in this three-way dance, it it doesn't elevate anybody, but instead I think it drags all three teams down. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't a good showing. And not just that, but, I mean, we have Harlem Heat. It's in their name, Harlem. And we're in New York, and they make no reference to that. Obviously, because they're they're not legitimately from <laughs> New York, but still, I feel like they should have given some shout out, some sort of promo of like, "Hey, we're we're on our home turf here." Where's Ahmed Johnson from then? Legitimately, yeah. Let's find out. I'm gonna look up and find out where. What's his real name? Ahmed Johnson. So where are you doing that? That was Anthony also Norris. Anthony Norris. Okay. Anthony Norris is. Oh my. So he's called Tony. Anthony Big Norris T. is from Houston. All three there members go. of this Harlem Heat feud are legitimately from Houston. So we have to act that they grew up in New York. So it does make sense, almost. Well, that's the weird thing. And, and Nate, I, I don't know. I don't remember if you know. Did they ever square this away that when they did that great vignette where Stevie Ray goes to the hood where him and Booker are from, it's clearly not Harlem. No. Like, it, there's it, not a lot of open fields in Harlem. <laughs> and I don't, I, don't, I don't know if they said Houston on the screen, but I certainly know it wasn't Harlem. So it might have just been kind of generic place where black people live. <laughs> Who can – that was a staple for WCW. They should have just announced Booker T as from generic place where black people live. 
Maybe that should have been the name of the uh, name of the team. Generic place where <laughs> black new, people live heat. That's a new <laughs> That's a new stable. Uh, can I just add one thing as well? I used to really love Daphne, but my god, the screaming as yeah. like a background uh, music to the match was especially was quite when they're fitting. supposed to be the baby faces. Well, I was screaming in my head as well whilst I was listening to her and watching this match. So Mean Gene uh, earns another paycheck here as we go backstage where he interviews Champagne Chris Canyon, who is flanked by two women and a prop title belt from Ready to Rumble. This was the legitimate title belt they used in the film. I'm glad you explained that because I was confused. You were confused. Like, why is there a silver world title over his shoulder? The nameplate says The King, so this was the one they took from WCW Ready to Rumble. Gotcha. Canyon says that he is Hollywood and that his movies come out in theaters rather than being straight to video. Canyon calls Dustin Rhodes a horrible actor based on his promo last week on Thunder. Who does Canyon then cite as an example of incredible acting? David Arquette. (laughs) Guys, the writing's on the wall here. (laughs) When they go to the arena where hardcore champion Bam Bam Bigelow is the latest person to have a match I don't fucking care about. This show was three hours long. We have 11 matches on this show, guys. There's still four more after this, I think. Oh, God. Uh, the, the weird thing about this, uh, I've never seen a WCW Hardcore Championship before. Yeah. Um, you know, I've maybe it's because I'm used to the WWF one, which is like mangled and makes sense because it's mm-hmm. hardcore and everything. This looks like an actually quite decent looking title from what I could see. I think they're trying to replicate the ECW title. It does look like, it does look yeah. like the ECW title. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. So Bam Bam Bigelow's opponent for the match will be The Wall, who this week has ditched his blazer, and he comes out carrying a ladder. This is a WCW hardcore match, so you know what that means. We got kendo sticks and trash cans and chairs and unprotected headshots and a table. Bam Bam won with a greetings from Asbury Park. Really don't need to know anything more than that. After the match, Brian Knobs runs down and attacks Bam Bam with his cast. These two will face each other at Super Brawl for the hardcore title. This allows The Wall to recover to chokeslam Bigelow. So literally nothing was accomplished here <laughs> at all. These are, I mean, we've had one of these matches. I've already said it. I hate these matches. Um, I hate WCW doing these matches. At least in other companies, the tremendous physical toll people would put their bodies through would at least get a reaction here. Crowds on their hands, and the announcers could not give a fuck towards selling anything that we're seeing. No, and then it's... It's a problem that other companies had. I think, you know, the, the WWF hardcore division was never really anything to write home about either, but certainly you see it here in WCW that they were cognizant enough to realize that ECW was popular or had been popular, but they didn't know why ECW was popular. You know, it wasn't just for the blood and guts. You know, it wasn't just for the scantily clad women. It wasn't just for you know, the language that was used, you know, in between all that or amidst all that, there was some great wrestling and some great wrestlers. And so when you just kind of take the Cliff's Notes version of what made ECW connect with the fans, you're left with something that does not resonate because it's not authentic. And so, you know, you can't try to sell me Bam Bam Bigelow as great as he was at one time. Uh, but he certainly wasn't that in 2000. You can't try to sell me Bam Bam Bigelow and The Wall and Brian Damn Knobs and try to tell me this is a legitimate hardcore division. It, it, it's just not going to work. That's interesting you mentioned about Bam Bam because I watched um, Survivor Series 87 uh, a couple of weeks ago for for whatever reason. And he was in the main event and incredibly popular and getting a huge push and a huge pop. 
and you've got to remember that that was 13 years prior to this match. Yeah. And uh, while we're talking about 13 years ago, I'm not one to mock old fat men, but the state of Brian Nobbs. Yeah. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> that haircut man. did not do anything for him. He's not doing him any favours. That kind of two-tone thing going on. He's got a touch of the bully rays about him, <laughs> but not in a good way. He's wearing the uh, bright orange camo. Was, very I think it, was it the blue or the blue camo? Was, was it blue or was it orange? I'm would, colorblind, but I... That's yeah. right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think he was wearing the orange this week. Yeah. It was the orange? Okay. I was maybe distracted by his hair, <laughs> which is also orange. <laughs> Once a fucking again, Mean Gene is being yelled at by some wrestler in the back. <laughs> uh, this time it's the Mamelukes who challenged David Flair and Crowbar to a Sicilian stretcher match. What makes a Sicilian stretcher different than a regular stretcher? I don't know. Alliteration? <laughs> Maybe the crust is thicker. I don't know. Like, what What could... It's in a we, squared circle. That's a Sicilian <laughs> slice, isn't it? Like, we got this a couple weeks ago, Nate, where we had a Benson Hurt street fight in fucking Pennsylvania. Why do we have to uh, ethnically brand every match these guys are in? Uh, well, if we did it with Harlem Heat, then we would have the... Uh, what was that? The Urban Wrestling Federation with Melly Mel? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, back in the ring, uh, Dustin, uh, we got another match. We got fucking match 75 of the evening. Dustin Rhodes comes out looking like, what the fuck was he looking like? He looked like a Gus Van Sant character. He's got bleach blonde hair, a pencil thin goatee, leather pants, <laughs> and a red velvet vest. Yeah. This never looked good. Don't don't rack don't chalk this up to time period. This was fucking awful. It was the vest that I couldn't quite get my head round. He's got the well, the vest weird... could, couldn't quite get around his waist either. Well, that's a good point. It's a good point. <laughs> uh, the, I've seen the weird noodly hair before. The goatee beard was of its time. The leather pants. Hey, Kevin Nash pulled them off. But the one thing that I can't explain was that waistcoat, that vest. Yeah. Why? Why velvet? Like why I know a waistcoat. There's... There's always been that idea that maybe the Gold Dust character limited Dustin Rhodes and that he should have been able to do more. I never saw anything in this guy's career that that made me think otherwise. I like Dustin in like 91, 92. But then again, I like Bill Watts era WCW, which means that my opinion is invalid. You like him white bread. I do. I like that white... (laughs) White, white meat baby face. <laughs> Him and Barry Windham were a very underrated tag team, by the way. Just have to throw that out there. Nate, how would you describe this outfit? Oh, man. I I think it was unique. It was, uh to, to steal one of Jim Ross's phrases, it was bizarre. During this whole kind of comeback as Dustin Rhodes, his his wardrobe kind of gave off like a a Samuel Shaw kind of vibe. <laughs> like, like, like maybe not as creepy as Sam Shaw, but maybe he was like Sam Shaw's uncle. Sam like, Shaw uncle, never had like red leather pants though. Which, yeah, you know, this is cooler uncle, uncle, uncle Dustin that lives down the block <laughs> from Sam Shaw and, and his mama Christy. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, this was not a good look for Dustin Rhodes, who again, to uh, Chris's point earlier, like I think that Dustin had some potential. Just if, if you're going to make him just Dustin Rhodes, you know, son, son of the dream, like the, the run he had with Ricky Steamboat as a tag team and, and, uh, you know, some of the babyface things he did earlier. I think that that worked for a time, but I don't know how much you could have sustained that because uh, eventually he'd have to get over past the Rhodes name. Uh, so I think the Goldust thing is, was good for him. And then this kind of comeback 
where he's just now he's Dustin Rhodes, but with an attitude and, and a fashion sense that rivals Sinbad, uh, the comedian, although maybe, maybe the sailor as well. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it just didn't click. And, and it's, I don't think it was Dustin's fault because he's, as we've seen, like with the Goldust character in this last kind of run that he had with the WWE before he got hurt, like he, he could still go. He could still be a compelling character. But, uh, at this time, I don't know if, uh, they were clicking on all cylinders when it came to how are we going to present Dustin Rhodes in a modern context? Cause whatever they were going for, uh, it, it didn't connect with the fans. Now, just to avoid talking about this match for a second longer, Yes or no, should they have actually tried the Seven character? Because I, I would say, yeah, I, I actually kind of wish they would have let that, that Undertaker ripoff, you know, run its course. And the, I, the, I just remember those vignettes and being legitimately creeped out at the time, back mm-hmm. back then. And so, yeah, it certainly got my attention. And going with the theme of tonight's show, I think if, if you've got a guy that is this creep who's peering to children's windows at night what better manager for him to have than one mark madden i was gonna say he's already (laughs) on commentary (laughs) so dustin's opponent for the evening is his would-be acting coach canyon canyon is escorted by two nitro girls wearing skimpy heart lingerie this was from an earlier nitro girl segment that was cut from the network for some reason i don't know that's what tony was teasing earlier i was gonna say that was because i I was that was a surprise I'm watching this whole thing like, where's the damn surprise, Tony Giovanni? I was like, was Rhonda Singh and Mona supposed to be the surprise? <laughs> also, <laughs> ladies love Valentine's Day probably more than men, so why are you? Why, why is there not nothing for the ladies? I'm glad you mentioned that you mentioned that because that made absolutely no sense. Did One the- Chris Canyon coming out yeah. with that belt and with the two girls with the outfits. How many unsatisfied slash disappointed slash disappointed women do you think were in that crowd, having been? Dragged to WCW Nitro on Valentine's Day. Women in a crowd on WCW. Hey, a wedding happened here. That's a good point. So hey, they got men. a wedding and they got to see Lex Luger get stripped by Terry Funk. That's true, man on man. It worked for me. So uh, we then uh, get Ken in the ring. He gets the mic and he calls himself Hollywood, but Rhodes schoolboys him but only gets a two. Canyon then tosses Rhodes to the floor, grabs a chair, but the ref takes the chair away from Canyon. Canyon chases the ref but gets laid up by a Rhodes clothesline. Back in the ring, Rhodes hits Canyon with a Shattered Dreams. It's where he just kicks you right in the balls in the in the turnbuckle. DQ. DQ. Nope. No. Uh, no DQ. Also, the move does not have a name. They're not. They don't know what to call it. <laughs> Rhodes and follows up with a slam for the win. This was another meaningless match. Uh, Nate, we have not seen Chris Canyon since the very first episode of Nitro, and we have not seen Dustin Rhodes at all. So this was clearly just a thing where we're going to shoehorn uh, this match because we got to fill some time. This one was was weird, man, because obviously, you know, we talked the last time we saw Champagne Canyon, uh, now Hollywood Canyon. Like, I I always thought the guy had potential and was was another one of these talents that was underutilized. But this match didn't do a whole lot for me, which is a shame, because I think on their own, both of these guys are competent workers, uh, but with no story to ground the match and with... Uh, your man Dustin's fashion choices, it, nothing clicked here. What, there's one positive thing about it. Yeah. Champagne is a great nickname for a wrestler. Oh, it's great. I really like that. Although I believe that the champagne gimmick gets dropped at this point. And uh, by the way, this is another final time to see a dude <laughs> the for one, a while. The mate. one thing that I like about the gimmick is taken away. It's taken away. That's really right sums it up. 
I, I get a feeling you will not be watching the February 21st episode. I'll be watching Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Just for one match. A man for all seasons, Mean Gene, once again <laughs> backstage talking with the one and only Hulk Hogan with Jimmy Hart. The Hulkster says there's nowhere better than New York to bury a few bodies. And once he's done burying Flair, he's going to bury Luger. Truer words, never spoken <laughs> by the Hulkster. Well, you know something, Mean Gene? I can't think of a better place to bury a couple of bodies than New York City. Ric Flair, I've got you tonight on Nitro, and I'm going to bury you somewhere on the outskirts of the Hudson River. And if something happened that Lex Luger wanted to get a little froggy and jump on me before Super Brawl, I'll deposit his body also. I mean, I'm not going to complain too much about not getting Hulk Hogan doing his fucking tired shtick in 2000. But again, this is it didn't feel that inspired. You could tell that this was taped earlier in the day also, without a crowd reacting. Also, why is Hogan only doing like a... It was a short promo, like a 15-second promo. Yeah. You ply that guy with like half a gram of Coke and you give him like 60 to 90 seconds and you let him go with Mean Gene. That's what Hogan promos are supposed to be. And it seemed like he'd only had like maybe one bump and or like smoked a spliff or something. There was no kind of... Well, that's the thing. They clearly taped was, this earlier in the day. I think by the time tell. the match came, he had had a little bit of free time. Exactly, yeah. He, maybe himself. he was hungover or tired or something. but it, And he didn't get the time to do what Hogan does. It's the exact same thing as what we said with Flair earlier on. So a mm-hmm. bit disappointing. And you talk about the the use of time, uh, time management, uh, as it were, on this show, Brian, man. And there were so many backstage segments, so many backstage interviews. Why wouldn't you, and I'm obviously not the biggest fan of Terry Bollea, but why wouldn't you hype up this match with some video packages? You know, I think we did we see one video package highlighting Flair and Hogan at all? And that's the weird thing is the week before they showed us footage of Flair and Funk and their classic matches to, for some reason, promote a David Flair match, I feel like you could have done with this, you could have shown the video. You could have said, hey, here's their massive rivalry going all the way back. They've had these classic pay-per-view matches. And while they had had a feud the year previously, which had a couple matches on pay-per-view, this was honestly the first time they'd face each other on television since A Clash of the Champions in 96. So I feel like you could have hype this match up throughout the entire evening, shown some clips, and by doing that, you probably could have removed one, maybe two matches from this card that didn't need him. Speaking of didn't need him, Gene Oakland is then having another backstage interview, back-to-back pre-tapes from Mean Gene here. This time he is talking to Booker. Gene at one point fucks up and keeps calling him Booker T, but whatever. Booker says that his music is a constant reminder of what he's going to do to Big T at Super Brawl. Because remember, he and Big T will be facing each other this Sunday for the letter T. What's that, Nate? <laughs> yeah, I think that was uh, Jay Biggs calling me uh, <laughs> in regards to you uh, saying that letter that we are not allowed to say legally. Oh, sorry. Uh, and he, he was going to file an injunction against Keep It 2000, but I had to send him a text to let him know everything was cool. But uh, <laughs> Good escape. I, <laughs> I, you got you got to love uh, uh, Booker in this man. Like he has been put in this position with this dumb storyline, which went from again, I, and I hate to say it because this was concept versus execution. Uh, you know, oh, you, no, yeah, talk, you, you went to bat for this angle multiple times. Yeah, and and the when it's just Booker and Stevie, it's a really good story. But once you introduced Midnight, once you introduced Big T, once you introduced. 
uh, Jay Biggs, this thing got away from him really quick, and now you got Booker T coming out to the ring with some Leave It to Beaver music. I agree. This is one of these angles that I actually, uh, well, understood, which uh, which helps. This but, was the angle you understood? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, that, well, maybe it's because uh, they, well, they explained it, and I actually enjoyed it. But the fact that you can take away someone's identity, mm-hmm. and it kind of rings true today as well when so many uh, wrestlers come into the company and they have to change their name, they have to change their gimmick, they have to do this and that. I like the idea of, of the story of that. I mean, they've gone in a really strange direction. Why does why does Booker have that music? Because he, did, he can just have like a really normal... That's the thing that they haven't quite uh, established, is that Booker has left Harlem Heat Incorporated... So he's an independent contractor now. He has nothing to do with the thing. So he can pick his own entrance music. Exactly. They haven't quite established why Jay Biggs and and company now get to choose what Booker T continues to come out to. <laughs> right. So they still own the rights yeah. to Booker Huffman, the man. Unless. As well as the, re- uh, the, the rest of They should explain that. Uh, unless following in the contract uh, shenanigans of WWE, they actually had a 90-day no-compete clause on Booker, and where he's not right. allowed to pick his music for 90 days. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> we then go to the arena for our ninth fucking match of the night, The Demon versus Booker. The Demon emerges from his casket as Tony informs us that Kiss has announced their farewell tour. That's how terrible The Demon is. He's killed Kiss's drawing power. <laughs> Booker comes out next to his Leave It to Beaver music. There was nothing to this match. Uh, least of all, any crowd reaction. They are sitting on their hands. You could tell they maybe wanted to get behind Booker, but the the anti-heat of Demon just sort of <laughs> ends this whole thing. We're at net zero overall. Uh, Booker works hard. No one gives a shit. Spin kick, axe kick, spin a Rooney, slam cover pin. Uh, really nothing more uh, to get into here. The thing I'm most interested in actually is uh, Chris getting your thoughts on Kiss the Band and Demon Kiss Wrestler. Okay, um, I actually thought about this because that's um, this is one of the I actually finished off the episode just before um, just before we got here because it took me a few goes, uh, and I was trying to think of any Kiss songs, and I think I only know one. Yeah. Which I'm not going to mention or sing. Is it is it Love Gun? No. Is it uh, that All Night song? Yes, the yeah. All Night song. That's the, <laughs> so that's the only Kiss song I know. You could like play me any yeah. other Kiss songs, and I wouldn't be able to pick them out of well, a lineup. Well, I have a theory, and tell me if, if if you agree with this as a musician. I think that Kiss is like one of those taste barometers that if you like Kiss, you're probably a fucking idiot. Yeah, uh, they're I, a nickelback of their generation. Well, I think they, like, do, like, a fun thing, right? But if you, like, swear by Kiss being, like, if you're Eric Bischoff and you have half a million dollars to spend on a musical act and it's Kiss, yeah. or if you're Vince Russo and you say that Kiss is the greatest band that ever existed, bro, then I think that says a lot about what you look for in art. I think and so. thus, that says a lot about you as a person. I think it says a lot about pop music in general because there's a lot of, um, I think, Kiss's music maybe secondary but behind there's sort of like this rocky horror persona that yeah. they have and there's there's a lot of gimmick and there's a lot of showmanship which is great but you know queen had showmanship yeah they also had songs so the fact that i only know one kiss song maybe you know i'm going to be vilified by all of your listeners but uh i can only show you what i what i know now as a uh as a recording artist yourself who i think probably it's fair to say you probably editors achieved a a, a level of fame higher than kiss no. I think it's fair. To, I think that's fair to say. No, Kiss was never on a Twilight soundtrack. Uh, fair point. 
Um, let's say editors. Neither was I. I actually didn't play on that track. <laughs> I still get paid, but fuck it. You still get paid for it. Still That's got all that paid, man. Still getting paid. The, the Hogan rule. Yeah. There you uh, go. Let's say editors were to have, first off, would editors have had a themed wrestler? And B, what do you think his entrance would have been like? Oh, my God. Maybe it would have been like a sort of like a, maybe a seven kind of, or an undertaker, right? I could imagine something like quite dark and gothic or something Mm -hmm. like that. Maybe, uh, who was that geezer on ECW who was dreadful, who came out with Shelly Martinez? What was his name? Kevin Thorne. Kevin Thorne. Kevin Thorne. Kevin Thorne would be editors. You know, I can't say undertaker because undertaker's like, you know, the Beatles. So, yeah, I'll say Kevin Thorne. Because to me, I think the editor's uh, wrestler entrance would have been everyone else in the band deciding to kick you out for having signed this agreement. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. It would have been my idea. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody else would have really warranted it. It's not, you know, wrestling and and rock and roll doesn't doesn't really go hand in hand. It's, it's, I mean... It's not, especially not when it comes to if you're trying to make a, a legitimate recording artist. Yeah, I was going to say, other than the initial rock and wrestling connection or maybe some of the Memphis stuff, I guess back in the day, uh, you could say that connection worked, but that's before any of us were really watching wrestling. Uh, but in terms of modern stuff, yeah, it's been more misses than hits. Whether you talk about ICP or the misfits or the no limit soldiers, like it's been a lot of misses, uh, machine gun, Kelly flow rider, like, I guess we got Limp Biscuit as well. I mean, we mentioned oh, Limp Biscuit might be the most successful. Fair. I was thinking that. I mean, didn't never really got involved in the matches, but let's face it, the what Undertaker a, what a came. Waste. What? A waste. Although Fred Durst was an unlockable character I, in one of the SmackDown. I know that was part like, of the yes. deal, wasn't yeah. it, or something? Yeah. Like, Fred, honestly, Fred the best good. application of music to wrestling uh, was to me lately, in, like in the last twenty-five years, would either have been Kevin Federline because I love that run the Federline had. I missed that one. Uh, or The New Day. And we talked about it when we did Keep It 100. We did our rap and wrestling show hmm. where they're not actually out there rapping like R-Truth or somebody like that, but they are informed by hip hop, you know. And so uh, I think The New Day fit uh, that that barometer. But in terms of just actual music and wrestling, it, it's rarely been a good fit. And if anybody has a problem with that, uh, they can catch me outside. How about that? <laughs> Let's, uh, let's throw the Freebirds out there whilst we're talking about oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, stuff like that. And uh, there was a few times when Michael Hayes sang himself to the ring with varying degrees of success. Oh, that, I still remember that, uh, that that video for Bad Street. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, was a, that was a good one. I remember when they did their, their new entrance and their, I think their monitors failed. And him and uh, it was Jimmy Jam Garvin dancing mm-hmm. to the ring completely out of time and completely missing their cues. Jimmy Jam. <laughs> oh, dear. He, uh, he had no rhythm, that guy. Completely no rhythm. It is now time for our 10th match of the night. This company actually paid Michael Buffer to work this show. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight will be one of the greatest nights in WCW Monday Nitro history. And we are about to see why. As two of the greatest names in the history of professional wrestling will face each other in this ring. Are we ready? WCW fans, are we ready? For the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world, we are ready. 
both these guys looked so fucking old. I just want to take a time and just kind of talk about that. It, what was so sad was that they're wearing the same gear they would have been wearing a decade earlier, but it's the, the miles are on them. And when Hogan would go to WWF, they would put, you know, long pants on them. They knew how to dress them properly. This the this was kind of sad, seeing both these guys. I, I was legitimately sad watching these guys have the same match they would have had in 94, but having it in 2000. <laughs> didn't didn't bother me didn't bother me one bit and i'll tell you why show for you it was it was and you know what it was like i mentioned it earlier it's that the, it didn't feel like a wrestling show i mean it, it was a wrestling show but it was nothing that i recognized from wrestling that i watched even like before or yeah. since so this was the first time when they first, when they came in and they took the gimmicks off and everything it was just there was the red and yellow of hogan was, i think flair was wearing the red trunks and okay, they looked a little bit weird, but you know, also I just had laser eye surgery recently, so I can't see perfectly. So they kind of looked like Flair and Hogan in a ring, and I haven't been watching that. It was more so that. that you just saw a Flair and Hogan-esque blur on your screen. Basically, <laughs> and you know what? After seeing, like, sitting through, you know, Tony Marmaluke and all that, <laughs> this was like, I actually felt like it was a wrestling show for the first time. Yeah. I knew exactly what I was going to get. Mm-hmm. I was going to get Flair, Hogan, along, you know, past their prime. And also, we got the Hogan Bump Count Challenge. And that is something that we have to get to here. Nate, Chris and I will watch old Nitros, old old Hogan uh, matches, and we have come up with a game, which is the Hogan Bump Challenge. Now, Chris, do you want to explain to Nate what that is? It's, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory, but um, before a Hogan match, whether it be Nitro or pay-per-view, tag team or whatever, um, me and Brian will... Uh, guess how many bumps Hulkster will take in that match. We'll, uh, we'll uh, probably usually conceal the hands behind the back and then say them at the same time, so it's fair. And then we'll put a small wager on it, where it might be between yeah. $1 to $10, depending on, what, uh, depending on the economy. And you might find this extremely lame and wonder how either of us have ever had sex with a, 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 an alive woman. But I will actually say, this is a very fun game to play with your friends, guys. <laughs> uh, put some money on it. This started where he and I did this for a Nitro in 97. And we lost our minds that Hulk Hogan, in the world title match at Starcade only took four bumps. We have now learned that that is an Iron Man for Hulk Hogan. As we have seen matches where he took one bump that were main events. So with that in mind, uh, we always do our bumps ahead of time. Chris, I'm curious for this match, what was your bump wager? My bump wager, and you can check my text because I sent Mm -hmm. it to you before before I did it. I said I was tempted to go for zero. But I think it would have more respect for Flair. I went two. You went two. Now, Nate, you're just now hearing of this. Maybe you don't have a, a play-by-play written down. How many bumps do you think Hulk Hogan took during this match? See, I would have gone way over just on the... Just just thinking about what a professional wrestling yeah, job is to do. We did, we did the same thing. <laughs> we made the same mistake. Just you know, thinking about the job description, I probably would have gone you know north of six or seven bumps. But now hearing yeah. his history and his track record, I'm going to say. I mean, this was like a 15 minute match. <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to go four bumps. You're going to go four bumps. I went zero bumps. I'm thinking <laughs> this is his big return match. Flair, who is older than Hogan. Uh, <laughs> Easily took like 30. (laughs) So with that in mind, let's get into this match and count down how many bumps Hulkster took. 
And they're chanting Hogan? They're chanting Hogan's name. You know they are. It almost sounds like Flair, but I'll trust your judgment here. No, it's Flair, it's Flair, it's Flair. It's Hogan, Hogan has two syllables. Flair has one. Now you got me there. So this crowd is losing their shit. Chanting Hogan. These two are circling each other. Hogan then does his round of shoulder blocks. Flair cuts Hogan with a chop, but Hogan fucking no-sells it. They then brawl to the floor where Hogan again continues to no-sell anything. Back in the ring, Hogan does even more no-selling until Flair hits a low blow. Flair then works over the knee. This then causes Hogan to tumble. Mm. Now, this is an interesting caveat. This is a debate here. This is an interesting caveat to the bump count rules. Now, Hogan might take a bump on an offensive move, for example, a belly to back. Yeah. So, which we don't count. This is regular bumps on uh, on defense. Now, Hogan likes to do a technique which I call the bum and roll, which <laughs> is where he bumps on his backside mm-hmm. and then rolls onto his back, not a bump. He also does something where he drops to one knee and then rolls onto his back, not a bump. Right. It's got to be a flat back bump. And also a classic that we love where he will grab the middle rope as he falls down. Textbook. <laughs> preventing any pressure from happening. Textbook. Uh, well, what he did here was it was as though, you know, like when a baby's trying to walk between two adults and doesn't quite get it. So they kind of like fall on their ass. Mm. This is what Hogan did. He fell on his ass, then landed on his back. So it was more of a tumble. It's just bum bump. Yeah. Are we going to uh, asking everyone here? Are we going to consider this? I'm not considering that. It's a classic Hogan bum bump. OK, just a bum bump. Yeah. Doesn't count. Doesn't so Hogan's count. still at zero. Yeah. Although he is now on his back, which allows Ric Flair to lock in a figure four as the crowd cheers for Hogan. Hulk reverses the hold, and Flair breaks it. Hogan favors the left knee, and Flair hits an honest-to-goodness snapmare. Yeah. I don't know if Hogan knew this was coming. <laughs> Hogan was billed by Buffer at six foot seven. <laughs> Guys who are six foot seven shouldn't take a snapmare. This, so there we go. One honest bump from Hogan. We then have more chops to Hogan, but he hulks up. Hogan then follows up with punches in the corner, avalanche uh, clothesline. Nick Patrick then pulls Hogan off of Flair. This distraction allows Flair to grab brass knucks from his te- from his trunks and punch Hogan. Hogan takes maybe a bump. He gets punched. <laughs> it's another Hogan bump it w- bump. I don't know if it's a bump bump. I think this is more of like a side. It's a side. It's contentious. It was like the way like a senior citizen would get in a pool. Is the thing how is, it he does take a bump, but it's after. It's like in animation. Right. He's already taken a knee and then gone onto a bump, which technically isn't a bump. I need to watch it again. Yeah, I think I, I would. It, it's debatable. It, it's uh, up for dispute, but I would have to lean towards this being more bump than not. So we are calling this two bumps, which means that I'm out of the running. I said zero. I thought that Hogan was going to be taking this real easy. It's his return match against his old buddy, Flair. But no, he's Mr. Perfecting this with the whole two bumps. (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy Hart then runs down and complains to the ref before getting punched by Flair. Flair then drops an elbow, only gets a two. Hogan then hulks up. Hogan does the boot, drops the leg, but total package runs down for the save, ending the match in a DQ. So Hulk Hogan, his first match back since October, two bumps. Show me the money. 
So, guys, we've explained this game to you. Play it with your friends. And, Nate, I think moving forward, anytime we watch a Hulk Hogan match, we're going to do this as well, okay? <laughs> I think it's a good plan. I, I like it. I like it. So, after the match, Fuck runs in and attempts to make the save, but Luger cuts him off. Why? So that Hogan could Hulk up and beat down <laughs> Flair and Luger by himself. <laughs> anything to funk who has a pay-per-view match this weekend hogan clears the ring and then grandstands for maybe an additional hour what i think happened here was that luger forgot that he was supposed to run back in he actually went to the back so so hulk is just is just prancing around for longer than half the matches on this but show he's loving it he does that anyway it's like yeah go away go away luger luger then runs down remembers he's got to do a spot uh he Hits Hogan in the back with a baseball bat and then puts the dreaded chair on Hogan's arm and breaks his wrist. Now I'm trying to remember. I don't think I don't think Hogan even took a bump. Hogan did take a bump. He took a bump off the ba- off the baseball bat. I can't remember what the bump was because I think what he did was he took the baseball bat, fell forward onto the ropes, and then gingerly let himself down. I think he did take a. <laughs> I remember thinking. I'm like, glad we're not counting this afterwards because he did. If we're counting the post match, I think Nate might might have won with four. Nate might have been in there at least three. At least we can call it a draw. <laughs> so, Chris, you said that you were happy to see this match. It was the first thing that actually resembled pro wrestling on this entire show. Yeah. Uh, Nate, you obviously are aware of the storied history between these two. Where did this land in the pantheon of their classic series of matches? <laughs> Obviously, this was not the peak of the Hogan-Flair rivalry, uh, and, and I know you said this was not a good match, brother man, but when you said that, the a great quote from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory came to mind. It's the scene when they're on the boat, when they're about to go through the tunnel, and I believe it's Mike TV who is spitting off the side of the boat, and Violet, Violet Beauregard is picking her nose, and she says, ew, spitting's a dirty habit, and Willy Wonka looks over and says, well, I know a worse one. Now, cut back to this match, Brian, man. You said this wasn't a good match. Well, I know a worse one because I remember Hogan and Flair on <laughs> TNA in 2010. That Very was good. a terrible match because they walk around looking like the California Raisins, at least in this match 10 years prior. But that was that was a tag <laughs> match. They had younger people hiding them. <laughs> it didn't matter. I could still see them. <laughs> uh, but, but this match 10 years earlier, while not the peak of Hogan and Flair, it certainly was more in line. Like, I could kind of see this as an off-Broadway production of Hogan and Flair and not just, you know, some dinner theater show in Sheboygan. Like, at least there was some trappings of what made Hogan and Flair Hogan and Flair. You know, it, it, it did its job. It did what it needed to do. The crowd was certainly into it. Maybe, maybe too into it because I think that having this match before the main event actually probably, you know, really hurt the main event. Yeah, I probably would have switched it, uh, to be fair, uh, okay. to be honest. I, I agree to check myself, got to watch this with 2,000 eyes, which were, you're not seeing Hogan and Flair have matches all the time. Uh, I can go on the WWE Network right now and watch any other match that's better from these guys. In fact, in in an internet era, Hulk Hogan is a useless wrestler because every single one of his matches looks and feels exactly the same. They just get worse over time. Whereas here... Let's say I didn't have these pay-per-views on, on, on VHS tape. This would have actually been something special. And this actually, even though they will have their infamous Yapapai strap match in a month, Nate, I'm really looking forward to talking about that with you. <laughs> this would be their last television match, singles match, until 2002 when they would face each other on Raw, and that would be it. They would actually never have another singles match after that. 
until they would have that Hulkamania tour. I'm talking about televised matches, of course. This was the best match on the card. Oh, yeah, come on. By a country mile. And I think, you know, we're talking about, oh, okay, Hogan and This was the only match that got time and it was the only match the crowd cared about. Agreed. Which is what wrestling's all about. Mm -hmm. If the crowd doesn't care, which they didn't with any other match, then that's what happens. And that's all I need to say. That's all you need to say. (laughs) Close the book on that one. Damn right. We then go backstage to... Who do you think? Is it Sid? It's Sid. Mean Gene. And Mean Gene. Oh, this is my favorite. The human mic stand. Mean Gene chats with Sid Vicious. Uh, We almost actually had a classic Sid promo (laughs) fuck-up. But he regains his his composure. He apologizes. He apologizes. <laughs> what a monster baby face. This killer. <laughs> apologizes for his demeanor. Oh, sorry, Gene. Yes, yes it has. Jeff Jersey, you have... Oh, 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 excuse me. No, 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 you no. Are as- it's not just yelling. It's yelling. Sit and then whisper. He does whisper sit a little bit. And then yelling. Sit. We get yelling and whispering. <laughs> which is great. I love it. Samoa Joe does that as well. It's an odd style. It's an odd way of talking. Like in in real life, the I think the angrier people get, generally, the louder they get. But with Sid, the angrier he gets, the more quiet and more eloquent his speech gets. That he really enunciates words properly, and then he gets really loud, and you can't really tell what he's saying. Well, Nate, you and I have established that our current president has a bit of the Sid promo to him. <laughs> He has a bit of the Sid intelligence as well. <laughs> Half the brain that you do. There you go. We then get uh, an ad for Super Brawl. <laughs> and this ad was so laughably out of date that it hypes the NWO's unstoppable dominance and contains footage of Bret Hart. Kevin Nash made it perfectly clear. We make the rules! NWO 2000 is on a mission to conquer and rule, or to ruin and destroy the very existence of WCW. Is there anyone who can stop the insanity? Find out as Snickers presents WCW Super Brawl. Has it been, what, three weeks or a month now since we've seen Brett? He has not been seen since before the last pay-per-view. Mm. However, we will see him again during our Keep It 2000 reign, so we're not putting him out to pasture just yet. So can I ask what Brett was doing at this at this point? Because I didn't understand why he popped up. Was he, has he already been, he had, got already the, had the he Goldberg? Got the, you know, the, the kick to Super the head. Kick. Oh, okay. And he'd had his final match against Kevin Nash. Oh, Christ. Yeah. Michael Buffer pulls double duty tonight as he brings out the participants for our 11th and thankfully final match. Uh, now, one of my favorite aspects of a Michael Buffer entrance are the little facts that he will give you about a performer. He has to fill enough time for this person to get to the ring. (laughs) And the fact that he has for Jeff Jarrett is that he is known the world over for his stroke. Uh, the match starts. Uh, there's a big clothesline uh, from Sid. They brawl the outside. Jarek gets whipped over the announce table. On commentary, Madden puts Sid over big by saying, A lot of guys, when they get the title, it doesn't seem right. But with Sid, it made sense. Really putting the guy <laughs> over here. Back in the ring, Jarrett locks on a sleeper hold since Sid's been working at HBK levels until this point. So they let the dude rest for a little bit. The ref does the arm check, but Sid gets his hand up on three. Sid fights back. Sid chokeslams Jarrett and then signals for a powerbomb. This then leads to, guys, another gift request. As Sid attempts a powerbomb, but Jeff's arm 
lightly grazes referee Mickey J, which blinds J and causes him to double over, making maybe the silliest ref bump I have ever seen. I believe Shivani, didn't he say that his heel, like Jarrett's heel caught him because like yeah. uh, Sid brought him up like halfway to the power bump. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's irrelevant. His heel and arm were nowhere near. Yeah, he says his heel hit him, which then obviously set up Mark Madden to make a heel joke. Of course. Oh my god, he did make a heel joke, didn't he? His foot got nowhere near him. Though. Yeah, it was embarrassing. <laughs> so Jarrett then retrieves the U.S. belt from ringside and hits Sid with it. Jay then miraculously regains his sight, but Sid kicks out it too. Jarrett then lays out Mickey J with a stroke. Jarrett tries to deliver the stroke to Sid, but Sid reverses it into a crippler crossface. <laughs> A shitty-looking Crippler crossface that Sid is now doing as revenge for Chris Benoit quitting the company. Jarrett taps, but there is no ref. This causes the Harris boys to run in. Sid double clotheslines the Harrises, but Jarrett has a guitar and he whacks Sid over the head with it. Out comes NWO ref Mark Johnson, who counts the pin. The announcers ask if Jeff can pin Sid for a third time at Super Brawl, and we mercilessly fade to black. This was not an elevation on any of the previous work I've seen from either of these two men. Uh, at the end of the show, knowing this was three hours, this was the best they could throw out there, being unopposed. It really showed how completely directionless this company was. Because you look at this main event and you say, man, these are not the guys to be in this position. But then you also look up and down this card, and I didn't see anyone else who made more sense. And yeah, Hogan and Flavor more over, but... It's clear these two should not have been fighting over a title in the year 2000. So, yeah, a very sad end to a very bad show. <sighs> this was... Uh... Me and, sorry, me and Nate were just that. With that leave that big gaping gap of silence in there, <laughs> yeah. please. Nate, you we, go. We had to let it, uh, it marinate. Right. I got to say, though, real, real quick, my favorite thing about Sid matches, and it's a little thing, but sometimes it's the little things in life that, that mean the most... Uh, I, I must compliment him on the way he signals for the power bomb. Just the the way he does the little hand thing with the the, the, the flare and the panache <laughs> I, I, that always gets a kick out of me. He actually shouts power bomb at the same time as well, doesn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With that weird like power bomb. Yeah, he's also got like that weird southern twang to his voice. It's like power bomb. <laughs> But it's like you don't. You see, you don't let Sid your opponents in. Strip club DJ. I feel like anything above that was too much for this guy. Okay, Brian. I don't want to like uh, crit- critique your um, your description of the match, though. But you missed a couple of things here. Uh oh. Were there some major points that you? There was Here's a couple of points. This was a fucking three hour show, and by this point, I I yeah. was not into taking notes. That's fine. Well, I took. I had a couple of goes at, at doing this show, so. Um, I only watched this match like a couple of hours ago. First of all, there should have been three DQs in this match before yeah. before the ref bump. So there was a chair shot to the outside, and I didn't make notes because uh, I thought you would have done it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mentioned very it. Very unprofessional. The, ref took the, chair. the Mark Madden of podcasting over here. But there was a. <laughs> was, I don't want to end up on any list. Don't. There don't. was <laughs> there was a chair shot on the outside of the ring from Sid to Jarrett, right in front of the referee. No DQ. And I'm thinking, okay, so maybe it's no DQ. It's no DQ match. But then the commentators are saying, on Sunday it's going to be no DQ. This isn't no DQ. So then Jarrett uses the the the, the, the chair mm-hmm. and no DQ. I swear something else happens like a low blow. No DQ. Well, there's a low blow. What do you have to do in WCW to get DQ'd? Uh, you have to do a moonsault onto a chair you didn't know was there. <laughs> like a, a moonsault headbutt. Okay, right, okay. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of already said, I mean, there's really nothing I could say positive about this. Nothing really happened. No. Uh, which I think was, uh, this probably should have gone on before Hogan and Flair, to be completely honest. Yeah, there's a bit of a, like a WrestleMania, like a Hogan Rock syndrome going on yeah. with this one. It's like, it's impossible to, to follow. But as we do each week, we do have to find something positive to say about the show. It is time for our silver lining segment. Chris, we'll let you go first. What was one thing that you unabashedly are able to call a positive from the show. Okay, I'm going to give you probably a couple. Um, I was expecting to, to hate the show. Um, I was expecting it to be dreadful. Um, all I found it was a little bit boring, which is very strange because it's mm-hmm. like that ADHD kind of booking, that sort of like, oh, you know, people are going to change channels. Well, it's a lot of stuff, but it's a lot of the same stuff. Exactly, so exactly. Yeah. And okay, things change, but I still found it a little bit boring. That's not a positive, obviously. But the Hogan flair, I think maybe because I've watched everything preceding that, mm-hmm. And when, you know, when you're in the mire, then you, if, if you see a glimmer of light, then, you know, you go to that light and it, and it feels good. For you, this match was kind of like the Hobbit films. It where might, it's enough like a thing you like. I think so. Okay. It, was, it was the most thing on the, on the show that resembled a wrestling TV show that I have watched in the past or, you know, what turned out to be the present or the future. And Nate, what about for you? Uh, well, I think I'm going to give the honorable mention to the uh, fabulous wedding reception. Uh, shout out to uh, Angie Mamaluke and her husband. Nate, I, I, I don't know why you're not married. I, I, I can't figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> hey, just just don't, don't hate because I'm, I'm a lover of love, Brian, man. Uh, <laughs> but really, my, my, my number one silver lining, and it's something I never thought I would say during the course of, of this experiment, it has to be the Tank Abbott sit down with Mike Tanay. Like, I, I really liked it. Like, I wish... I'd seen more of this with that guy because if you're trying to build him as this legitimate shoot fighter, you're trying to build him as this credible ass kicker, then I think, you know, a lot of times people say it's better to show than, than tell. But with this guy and that sloppy punch, I think it might have been better to tell and then show me a little bit. But uh, this was the most compelling Tank's Abbott, Tank Abbott has been since we started the show. Are you pumped for the skins match? I, I, I am not. I'm not, I can't. Uh, <laughs> Do you I can't say that I'm a it? fan of. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Like, I if if they had said it was going to be like a, I know you don't want to do like a lions den match type of thing, but if you could make it more grounded in a, in an MMA or a shoot style for this jacket, I don't know why this jacket is so important to these guys, but uh, let's just say it's a more grounded, more sports authentic type of match. I could get behind that, but. When you tell me you're going to put this jacket up on a pole, it's like, come on, man. It, it, it just makes everything a joke. I guess skins could go could go the other way as well. Because mm-hmm. like with the UFC fighting, you have the gloves on. Maybe, um, you know, skins means, you know, you used to have a tape fist match back yeah. in the day. I remember Barry Windham and Brian Pillman had a great match. They could have like a skins match as in you take the gloves off and you do bare knuckle. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. wrestling wasn't bare knuckle, but <laughs> I mean, I think a bare knuckle thing could have worked. I mean, it's just so weird that we're supposed to imbue so much importance into this article of clothing, and it's just being mentioned offhand at the yeah. last possible moment. Uh, for me, I can't believe it, but I'm going to have to find my silver lining comes from a, a segment involving Oklahoma. Uh, I thought that <laughs> Mona, the future Molly Holly, was just really great in that match, and she's in a segment with. Four pretty terrible performers, and I thought that she still showcased a lot. And up and down this card, I mean, she was probably the 
the shining star MVP of the whole show for me because everyone else I thought was either booked poorly, overexposed, or just didn't quite have the goods. I mean, I, I even put Booker in there because Booker's in such a bad spot with his booking. I thought that Mona was like someone that if I came away from the show, I'm like, wow, you could do something with that. And they would ultimately do nothing with that. But um, it's weird. I don't know if it's because the show was just so long, but the fact that all three of us actually had separate silver linings would insinuate that maybe people should watch this show. Would no, you? no. I mean, we. I think there is one thing that we all agree on as well. That no one should watch this. Well, that, but also, if we're forgetting, the artist. Yes. I didn't like the artist, though. Oh, you didn't? Oh, we, we all found the artist worth <laughs> discussing. Better than Prince I.K. <laughs> well, yeah, better than Prince I.K. What the fuck isn't better than Prince I.K.? Well, that's true. It's like, yeah, discussing the difference between herpes and gonorrhea. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think, though, to be fair, though, if they had used the actual Jimmy Hart theme, you, you would be singing a different tune, Brian Mann. I oh, agree. of course. I would be singing Purple Rain, the tune they were ripping off. <laughs> uh, so, Nate, here we are. We're, we're, we're at the end of our experiment. Uh, we're gathering more data. I don't know if it's having Chris here, but I feel like uh, maybe we're on the upward swing. I mean, we have completed seven trials of this thing. We're, we're halfway through February. We can't quite see the end of the tunnel, but we're, we're chugging along. Yeah, I think I had low expectations, and maybe that's a good thing to have while watching these shows. Uh, because I was not looking forward to this episode at all. But I think the combination of enough familiar faces uh, from the past that I remembered fondly, uh, whether they merited that or not, you know, such as Prince Iakea, uh warmed my heart a little bit. Plus we had Hogan and Flair, which wasn't a great match, but it was at least some sense of normalcy, as Chris was saying. Uh, you know, there, there was enough meat on the bone, albeit rancid meat that I didn't go starving this week. But again, I think that this show is starting to show, you know, the, the seams are starting to show a little bit. Mark Madden was not good to listen to for three hours. Uh, they needed somebody else at that table besides Stacey Keebler, uh, to make the commentary a little bit more, uh, conducive to a great wrestling show. Uh, and also, I, I think just not knowing what to do with people and putting people in positions where no matter how hard they tried, and I'm looking at a guy like a Norman Smiley or like Booker T when you put him in there with the demon, uh, you know, no matter how hard the, the actual guys and girls out there trying, if you put them in a situation where they're doomed from the start, they're not going to get over. And we saw a lot of that on this card. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's tough to say that they were doing uh, right by their talent, but I I think that I, I'm feeling a bit. We talked about this on the last Russo episode, where we're now in these Kevin Sullivan days. It's very boring. You can feel the transformation. We're we're moving away from the Russo stuff into what this new thing is going to be, and it's not exciting. Uh, for me, but I do want to thank Chris for being here, for being a test subject for us, and I'm curious, as we continue down this road, and as you are able to veer off of it, what advice do you have for, for us as we continue on this path? You put me on the spot here a little bit. I think um, the best thing that I did was take two goes at it. I mean, it was a three-hour show. Um, I split it up. 
and I watched. Uh, I actually was quite excited when you when you um, invited me on to show about three or four weeks ago, and I actually watched as much of the show as I possibly could in one go, which was half of it. Mm-hmm. And then I watched the Hogan Flair match yesterday, and I watched the rest of it today. So maybe. Break it down. So you think we should spend more time watching these episodes? <laughs> well, the same amount of time, but over the course of a week. Ruin right. two of your days instead of one of them. Uh, <laughs> do you have any advice for us about how we can kind of keep our minds? I think you need to stop. Um, uh, obviously, you're, you're going to break this down, aren't you? Because, you know, you're taking notes. You need to rem- uh, remind yourself of what's going on. I didn't. I purposely didn't take any notes on this one. I just wanted to watch it as... Uh, not even a wrestling show because it wasn't a wrestling show. You know, it just happened to have a have a ring in there. But if you just watch it like a show and just disengage your brain, I think it's the best way. Don't think of it as in like comparing it to the golden age of wrestling because it isn't. Take it for what it is, which is an entertainment broadcast. And brain off is the most important thing. And also, Stacy Keebler might just <laughs> p- pop up. So five stars. <laughs> Now, if people have decided that they actually want more Chris in their life after having listened to this, where can people find you? What, what's going on in, in, in your life right now? I'm trying to get my green card, mate. Yeah? So yeah. if people want to vouch for you in your green card hearings? I could do with a few affidavits, yeah. Okay. If anyone, yeah, if anyone wants to give me a few affidavits. Little said I haven't been asked to provide any uh, info. Well, you, know, you, know, you don't think that... I need uh, a legal resident, not someone who's a... You know. <laughs> podcaster isn't one that, that, that pushes you up? <laughs> no. Well, you know, we'll see. We'll see if it comes back again. Uh, and uh, social media uh, everywhere. Where can people find you? Make sure to plug that SoundCloud where people can hear you interviewing The Rock back in 2007, <laughs> was it? Yeah, I actually interviewed The Rock a couple of times. One of my friends is <laughs> a Radio 1 DJ back in the UK. And uh, I remember we'd like, we we played like Alexandra Palace. We did two nights at Ali, Ali Pali in London, which is like 12,000 people. Mm-hmm. I remember I was more fucking nervous for that Rock interview <laughs> like, than I was for playing both of those shows. I was so scared. And by interview, we mean 90 seconds. 90 seconds. It wasn't even an interview. Yeah, I just had a conversation with the guy on radio. On but they can radio. find that on your uh, on your SoundCloud. And what is that? Uh, I actually don't know what it is because it's not my name. Uh, I know it. Oh, okay. Well, can I, t- it's, isn't it Druid's official? Is oh, that Druid's it? music? I can't or Druid's music? I don't know. Well, we, it'll be on your Twitter, which is... That's my name. Yeah. Christopher. I really don't want the attention. So you don't, want the don't attention? follow me. <laughs> don't, do don't follow him. Don't do don't follow up with Chris at all on this. No, but I'm I will okay. say that I'm if okay. you do go to his Twitter, uh, if you go to his SoundCloud, you can uh, download the actual theme song to the show. People have been requesting that. It's on your really Twitter like anyway. So I've tweeted it as well. You can, Chris yeah. wants no attention from this at all. I don't know no, why I... he agreed to sit down and talk for two hours if he doesn't want any attention. <laughs> I like wrestling, man. I'm not, doing like this. I'm not doing this for any kind of attention. I don't need anything else, you know? I'm just happy with a quiet life now. Okay, this is going to be on the front page of Pitchfork. That's right. Pazes, member. Hey, man, go, go get yourself out of this. <laughs> And Nate, you and I, these trials are going to continue. We are unable to escape. We are coming up on our eighth episode, and I think these test subjects do something good for us, Nate. Do you agree? I agree. It's always good to know that you're not alone in in this universe. And, uh, you know, certainly having a Chris, both with the musical notoriety and also the accent, I think that bodes well (laughs) for our chances with the uh, Lady Cosmonauts here in a couple minutes. (laughs) Nice. I like to think that I have a soothing accent when, you know, you can get pretty angry when you're watching 2000 here at WCW. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like that uh, that scene in Love Actually where the British guy just comes to America in the accent alone. There you go. It does enough. help. It does help. 
<laughs> we have a lot of female listeners, is what I'm. Oh, of course you say. do. Yeah, what a fucking crock of shit that is. <laughs> uh, I, I also just want to say, I also want to say thank you for having me as well because I really oh. enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Now, as we do each and every week, Nate, I hand it off to you. You're the one with the wisdom. You get to sign off for both of us. Well, uh, yes, again, thanks to everyone for listening and downloading the show this week. And again, shout out to Chris for joining us up here on the Satellite of Hate. But it's not all about hate. Uh, actually, I think there's too much hate in the world, uh, especially watching this Valentine's Day episode of Monday Night Show. It, it makes me want to spread more love into the world. So I'm going to leave the listeners with the words of one of my favorite love songs ever written. Uh, it's by New Edition. And uh, I'm going to tie it into what we just watched, fellas. Because if it isn't love, why do I feel this way? Why does WCW stay on my mind? And if it isn't love, why does Nitro hurt so bad? Make me feel so sad inside. If it isn't love. Chris is holding in laughter over here. For fuck's sake. Oh, dear. We, we're in the wrong job. We should swap jobs, man. I'm telling you. It's <laughs> quite performance. Keep It 2000 is a live audio wrestling production. Executive produced by John Pollock and edited by Brian Mann. Theme song by Chris Urbanovitz. For more shows, check out liveaudiowrestling.com or subscribe on iTunes.